Welcome back to the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I am your host, as always, Robbie Burke. And before we get into today's show, I just want to give a shout out to all of the show's sponsors. Firstly, upmentorship.com, which is one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. The Ultimate Performance Online Mentorship is 20 hours of top-class strength and conditioning information available for instant access right at your fingertips. To find out more, head over to upmentorship.com, which is linked up in the show notes. Check it out and help support the show. Next, I want to give a shout out to Altus360 and Altus Education, which are two outstanding online resources for any practitioner in the sports preparation profession. Be sure to head over to the show notes and check out these unique platforms. Next, I want to give a shout out to Joseph Johnson at Ultimate Alley Concepts. Ultimate Alley Concepts is a multifaceted company providing the most sophisticated scientific material in sports science. Ultimate Alley Concepts is the world's leading resource for translated sports preparation material. Next, I want to give a shout out to Papi's National Sports Performance Association, which is an online certification platform for professionals within the sports preparation profession. Currently, the NSPA has four certifications available. Speed and Agility, delivered by Lee Taft. Olympic Weightlifting, delivered by Will Fleming. Nutrition, delivered by Dr. Chris Moore. And Program Design, delivered by Coach Robert Dos Remedios. For more information on the NSPA, be sure to check out all of the links in the show notes. Finally, I want to thank another brainchild of Pat Beef's, Athletes Acceleration, which is another online medium that delivers excellent educational resources for strength and conditioning professionals. And just like with all of our other sponsors, head over to the show notes to get the links to all of the available products that Athletes Acceleration has to offer. A full disclosure, except for Altus360 and Altus Education, I am an affiliate to all of the show sponsors. Lastly, before we get into today's interview, I just want to let all the listeners know that the podcast is now on Patreon. If you feel that you are in a position to support the show, I would truly appreciate any donations you'd be willing to make to help support the podcast. Okay, that's enough rambling from me. Let's get into today's show. This episode's guest is Maggie Downey from Personal Euphoria. Maggie is a Pilates instructor and the owner of Personal Euphoria. She has a bachelor's in history from Eastern Connecticut State University and has studied Pilates since 2002. Maggie is certified in beginner, intermediate, and advanced mat Pilates through Stott Pilates. Maggie has trained in Pilates for breast cancer rehabilitation and Pilates for pre and postnatal clients, Pilates equipment, as well as injuries for special populations. She's also taken classes and trained under Pilates elders Mary Bone, Ron Fletcher, Jay Grimes, and Loretta San Miguel. She thinks it's a privilege to work with different bodies, whether athletes or someone doing post rehab. Her enthusiastic, upbeat personality is effective in helping students become energized about health and wellness. On this episode, Maggie and I discuss Maggie's background, what is pain, how she works with clients that are in pain, whose work and research in pain has influenced her the most, what, in her opinion, are the leading factors to many individuals' pain, why she wrote her book, Keep Moving. I asked Maggie about the importance of language when dealing with clients and pain. I asked Maggie about how she deals with individuals who really self-identify with their pain. What are the biggest things Maggie has learned so far in her life and career? Maggie and I discussed the difference between sport and health. I asked Maggie what a typical day in her life is like. I asked Maggie for her top resources. I asked Maggie for her top and current book recommendations. 
I asked her for her top life advice. I asked Maggie if she only had one year left on planet Earth. How would she spend that year and why? And finally, I asked Maggie if she could invite five people to dinner, dead or alive, who would she invite and why? Guys, this is a great conversation with Maggie and I hope you really, really enjoy it. Maggie, we are recording. Thank you so much for making time. How are you? I'm good. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, I'm delighted to have you uh, in your beautiful cabin. What year did you say it was built? <laughs> uh, it was built in 1666. 1666. Huh? That's an old. I think. I think the the house I'm in now was like 19th century. It's my parents' house anyway. An old terrace house in the streets of Dublin here in Ireland. Um. So Maggie, this is going to be an interesting conversation because, as I said to you just before we start recording, I know very little about you. All I know is that you're from Connecticut. Well, are you from Connecticut? I know you're living there. Yeah, I'm born and raised here. Yep. Born, raised, and bred, huh? Like myself in Dublin, born, raised, and bred. Um, I know that you became a Pilates instructor. I know that you're fascinated with pain. And I know that you recently uh, brought out a book called Keep Moving. And apart from that, I know nothing else. So give us the whole background. Give us the spiel. Yeah, so, well, I actually went to school for history. And I taught um, high school for a little while. And then I worked at the Mark Twain House, in, which is in Hartford, Connecticut. And when I started working there, I started working out less. You know, I had my first nine to five job, right? And I was sitting at a desk for part of it, although it wasn't like a full-time desk job. And I started to like not feel well and, and put on a little bit of weight. And so I joined a gym and I started taking this Pilates class. And when the instructor left the class, the gym was like, if you get certified, you can take over this class. And I was like, well, that'll be fun. One night a week, I started teaching Pilates. And I loved it. And two years later, I ended up leaving my job at the Mark Twain House and starting my own company, a fitness and wellness company, where I taught Pilates. And that evolved, and I worked with all different types of clients. And one of the things I found is that all my clients, at some point in their lives, developed pain. Or they came to me because they were in pain, and it just became pretty obvious that None of us are getting through this life without dealing with pain and how to get through that. And watching people's perspective on what, on exercise and movement and how we tend to have this concept that we think it should hurt. And if it's not hurting us, we're kind of doing something wrong. Like we should be suffering to, to get physical fitness in our lives. Um, and then I also had bouts of my own pain. And I found that the fact that I knew so much about the body and that I had a good team of people to help me, massage therapists, chiropractors, and people that I knew I could trust with my body really helped me get out of pain. And when I realized that my path out of pain came from my background, I felt like I had tools that could help other people in pain. Because um, pain can certainly be very complicated. I wouldn't want to make anyone think like, oh, you read this book and snap your fingers, you're out of pain forever. But there's also a level to which they do have enough research now that there are some simple things all of us can change to reduce our chances of winding up in pain, to get out of pain. And even the way we think about pain can help us get out of pain. Uh, so I felt like my background in research from the history and my background in teaching, putting those all together, I could really help people get out of pain, which is sadly an all too common problem. Pain particularly lately because there's you know a lot of people are talking about pain science um and sort of i suppose on a spectrum at one end you have people kind of purely looking at 
like it from a psychological standpoint and then at the other end you have people saying no it's it's like it's a physical there's a physical trauma aspect to it and you can kind of get people at both ends kind of having this argument about it and you know now people are coming out saying that you know pain really is down to the individual person's perception um just if someone wants to ask you what is pain what would you say to them well i think to your point we kind of have these two ends of the spectrum as we learn more like is it mental or is it physical and the truth is it's both right Mm -hmm everything we perceive in the world is in our mind, right? If, if, we, if it's in our head, if our brain is telling us that's what is happening to us. However, housing our brain is this body that can get physically injured, right? Like if you cut your hand and it's bleeding, we have nerves. It is signaling the brain that there's pain, right? There is an actual injury. So I think rather than pain in general, we have types of pain, right? We kind of can break it down more. We have acute versus chronic, for example, right? So acute pain is I got in a car accident, I suddenly have whiplash, I'm in pain, I need to get medical attention right away. Chronic pain is three months later, I still have that neck pain. Even though I went to the doctor, I did my physical therapy, it's not going away. And now we have to resolve that. Sometimes there can still be physical signs in the body that there's pain. And sometimes it doesn't look like anything is wrong with the body, but the person is in pain. And that's a bit where they talk about the pain loop. For some reason, when we experience pain, our mind and our nerves can get in a cycle of telling us we're in pain, we're in pain, even if physically it appears there's nothing wrong with us. Mm-hmm. But I always like to caution, like, I never want anyone to ever be like, feel like someone saying, well, it's in your head, Right. If it's in your head, you're having it. <laughs> like that's yeah. your world, right? So somebody comes to you in pain, like walk us through that process. Like so, are, like in terms of your what you can do, like from a um, what's the word I'm trying to think of from a legal standpoint. Like, are you did you go on and do any sort of manual therapy courses? Can you put your hands on people? Like, uh, how, how far can you go with a client who's in pain? And, and could right. you maybe walk us through that process? Like if someone does come to you and they, are, they do have an element of pain, be, you know, back, shoulder or, or, or what else? Right. So I'm a applies instructor. I'm not a physical therapist, but I have training in injuries and special populations. So I can basically do post rehab. Okay. I'm also not a massage therapist or a chiropractor. So I would, I mean, I would touch someone to be like, do you feel this here? Can you, you know, like gentle touching, but I would never adjust someone or massage a client. That's not my role, but I would mm-hmm. refer them out for things like that. But when a client comes to me in pain, I also don't diagnose. So I like working with doctors or PTs when people have kind of answers, like they've gotten the MRI, they worked with the PT until the insurance ran out, and now they're coming to me. But my biggest thing is that I ask a lot of questions, as much background as possible. Um, Because you mentioned that like in the past 10 years, there's been a lot more research on pain theory. One of the things they found is that having like a an intake with people where they discuss their background, why they're in pain, why they think they're in pain, where they think it started, all helps unwind the pain, that kind of conversation. Um, And then throughout the movement that I do with them, I ask 
a lot of questions. Where do you feel this? How does this feel? Does it hurt? Is it better? Is it worse? Is this challenging? Is this easy, medium, and hard? I am constantly asking questions, and I always warn them at that when they come in. I'm like, I'm going to ask you just a ton of questions, and if you don't know the answer, that's fine, right? Um, but that feedback is really helpful for me because I'm looking at how they move and if a muscle's not firing or if there's some kind of imbalance going on. And so if we do a movement where they should feel it coming from their abs and they say, all I do is feel, I feel this in my back or I feel this in my butt, then it's my job to help them find their abs. And that can take more or less time depending on what's going on with the person, right? Mm. Uh, whose research would have influenced you most in the realm of pain? Like who have you, who have you looked to mostly from a research perspective? Um, well, I go into and I read a bunch of studies, a lot of neuro, neuro, neurologists currently, um, but there are certainly physical therapists that um, I think are working on pain theory. I quote a couple of them in the book, one from Connecticut. Um, there's a guy from South Africa, oh, and I feel bad because his name's escaping me now, but I can get that for you for like the show net notes. Um, yeah, Adrian yeah. Liu, Adrian Liu, I think okay. is how you pronounce his last name. And he's really good. He has like both online videos and research where he kind of talks people through the process of pain and pain theory. Um, I also really just like to study movement and what they know about how the body works. So for that, I go to like Liz Cook or um, Katie Bauman. Mm -hmm. She has a great website and blog and a few books out. Um, and Gil Headley is a bit of a fascia expert. Yeah, you know, so, Gil. Yep. I like, to, I like to follow people who are doing interesting research in all fields of movement specifically. Do you, have you ever read into any Butler's work, the Australian Denoy group, uh, Morner, um, and Lorimer Mamosley, and then there's also uh, Greg Lehman up in Canada. Those guys would be pretty big into pay, to pain science as well. I have uh, not. You don't, you'd like David Butler. David Butler's a funky guy. He always wears like, these mad orange red pants and all these mad, <laughs> he has that like, crazy Australian accent. And uh, Lorimer Mamosley is kind of uh, his... He works with Butler. Um, the Noy Group is what they're called. I'll actually check check it up there while you answer the next question. But um, what's the the Noy Group you're saying? N O I. So like uh, they do a lot of um, they do like a lot of uh, neurological tests and neur neurological uh, assessments and and um, slides and glides. Like they do a lot of um, treatments to to, to facilitate the. Uh, like um, any issues with the neurological system, you know, with the nerves. So like they, they'd assess nerve function and then they have like certain techniques then to help mobilize. Mobilization of the nervous system is, is David Butler. That's it. And the Noy group is what they're called. I'll, I'll pull it up here now while I ask you this next question. Um, why do you think there is such an epidemic of pain in society? Because you said at some stage that we're all going to experience pain, but it, it does. Now, again, I, if you said to me, give me a paper on this right now, I couldn't, but... I suppose, like, you know, reading McGill's work, he's like, about, in his textbook, he says about 80 to 85% of every human is going to experience like back pain at some stage in their life. But uh, it, it does seem to be, like a lot of people do experience, as you said, some form of physical pain, again, be it the back or the shoulder or the knee or, or some sort of joint or degeneration in their joints. Like, wh Why do you think it is so prevalent nowadays? Is it because uh, we're better at diagnosing? Is it because people are living longer so they're actually getting a chance to develop these issues? 
Is it because we're just so mismatched to our environment in terms of sleep and our light exposures and our food that we're more inflamed? What, what do you, why, why do you think? I mean, I think those are all a, a number of good starting points, like definitely food, definitely aging. Although I work with a lot of people that are, I mean, I have plenty of clients in their 50s, 60s, and 70s who are in pain, but I have clients in their 30s who see me and they're in pain, and I have clients in their 20s who are in pain. So to me, I think one of the biggest links in doing my research, uh, it's estimated that 1.5 billion people worldwide are in pain, chronic pain, right? So they're dealing with this for a long time. But the World Health Organization lists that 1.4 billion people don't get like the basic amount of activity they should a day. Mm. And those numbers to me are so closely aligned that to me, either we're not moving because we're in pain or we're in pain because we're not moving enough. And I know at least like, you know, in the US and much of the world, right, the advanced world, we sit a lot. And there's been a ton of research about how sitting is the the new cigarettes and sitting will kill you. I don't think sitting of itself is bad, but the problem is when we stop sitting, we don't necessarily get up and move and it's eight hours or more a day of inactivity. And so I really think a lot of our pain is caused by inactivity and the fact that what we are doing is the same thing, right? All we do is sit. So our body becomes very good at sitting and then it's tight in certain ways and weak in certain ways that when we go to move, makes movement even harder on our body, mm. right? Um, but yeah, I, I think absolutely there's a lot of problems with our food system and what we eat and sugar, which creates inflammation. We're living longer, but um, lack of movement, I think, is a big part because that, that old adage, move it or lose it, if we don't move things and lubricate things, everything gets affected, right? Like one of the things I like to tell my clients is like you move your feet in part because you're on them all day, even though we don't care about having gorgeous feet the way we want six pack abs, Mm. but your heart really like it pumps blood and it's movement that helps everything get back up. It's not like your heart has a strong enough pump to pump blood to your toes and back up. Movement moves the blood vessels, right? So that everything happens the way it's supposed to. Movement works the lymph system. All our intestinal issues, right? Like movement helps with the intestines. Everything that the body does happens through movement. Mm. The heart beating is movement. Breathing is movement, right? Yeah, yeah. Everything, everything is right down to like electrons and protons. It's all about just movement, so it is. But uh, yeah, I agree with you in terms of uh, that would be like the one word that comes to my mind and came to mind as you answered there was uh, veritability. So like if a species loses veritability, it loses adaptability. And that's essentially what's kind of happened to humans. We're losing our adaptability because we become so like specialized, essentially just doing this one thing, which is like sitting, you know? So like we're, we're, we're so one dimensional now that our ability to, our ability basically to be knocked out of homeostasis now is just so easy. We're just brittle, you know? So it is key that we, you know, we open up that window of veritability so we're more adaptable, more robust beings. So we're kind of, we're losing our robustness. Uh, as a friend of mine says, we're kind of becoming, what is it, what he, call, he calls it the, the pussification of our species. So, the, the what-fication? The pussification. We're becoming pussies, essentially. You know. we're, oh, not, yeah. we're not robust humans anymore because of how we live in the current... Again, it's like uh, we live in a very mismatched environment. You know, we live in heat, heated homes. We have lights 24-7. You know what I mean? We don't like to... We just don't like any, like... You know, we, like, how many people can actually, like, go outside in the winter, like, with just a T-shirt on? 
no, no one. They, they'd all get a flu like the next day because th- their system isn't robust enough to be able to adapt to weather change. Or like we used to live, we used to ha- like we have that mechanism in us to adapt to seasons, but we've we've robbed it now because we're we're basically in perpetual summer all the time with heated homes and lights and whatnot, and then we eat the same food all year round because of global transport and you know. And then as you said, we d- we don't walk, we don't hunt, we don't we're not connected to nature. So so all, all that's a driving factor in in chronic pain. It's so true. Um, we're very comfortable. And at the, on the one hand, that's fantastic, right? That's what human oh, yeah, beings yeah. have been striving for, right, is um, comfort. And everything we have shows that, our furniture, our warmer houses, you know, all of that. But I do think um, one of the things I think of is the sea squirt, right? It like kind of swims in the ocean. And when it, I don't know if you know this, but when it finds a place with the perfect temperature and just the right amount of food, it latches onto something Hmm. and it's no longer going to move and its brain shrivels up because it no longer needs its brain. And I think of that, right? Like there's debate on whether we're able to build new neurons or not, but if we are, one of the ways they think we might is through cardiovascular exercise. Is, is that right? a debate? Is that like well established that we do, we do grow new neurons? I don't know. I've read, I've actually, I, for a while I thought that they knew that cardiovascular made us grow new neurons. And then I read, well, they come, but if you don't set them, they, they don't stay. So you would have to like do a crossword within 20 minutes of exercise to sort of set them or, or do a math problem. You'd have to learn something to get them to stick. And then I've read, ah, uh, they can't really see. It's all assumptions. They haven't really physically seen that it's happening in an MRI that they're actually growing. So I'm not sure. It's changed the way I've talked about it because I definitely told my clients, cardiovascular exercise and you get new neurons. And now I'm a little hesitant, but I think I believe it, right? They've They've looked at even um, people's brains with Alzheimer's, the more physically active you are. And it doesn't have to be exercise, just active things you were mentioning, right? Like you, you cook, you get up through your day, you move around. They just did a pretty large study and they looked at the brains after death of all these seniors and the more physically active they were in the last 20 years of their life, even if they had signs of dementia, they hadn't developed symptoms of it. Yeah. So our movement again, it's connected to everything. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, I, I hope the answer is we get new neurons from cardiovascular exercise. Well, I, I feel smarter. I, 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 I well, I don't even just mean through cardiovascular exercise. I just mean like neuroplast neuroplasticity in general. I mean that's pretty well established. Out. Oh yeah. So we can definitely learn new tricks, right? Like, but that might potentially be. And I'm not an expert on neurology, but from the neurons you have, finding other ones to do the jobs mm. of the ones you have. But as we age, we lose neurons. We lose sensory neurons. That's part of our balance goes with age right you have as you get older you have less sensory nerves in your feet um and they kind we lose them in our brain as well but they had thought cardiovascular exercise was the only way they knew to potentially create new ones neuroorthopedic institute so that's that's what uh, the noi group stands for neuroorthopedic institute they're from Uh australia but they teach courses all over the world so david butler is the is the main guy behind the Neu Group, Neuro Orthopedic Institute. So they specialize in assessing the nervous system and then they have a range of techniques that they use to mobilize the nervous system if they find any issues. I took the course years ago, like over a decade ago, like when I was like a young book, I hadn't a clue what the fuck was going on. It was way above my pay grade. It'd be way above my pay grade now, like even, you know, but um, they, they're one of the, they, so he's a book called uh, The Sensitive Nervous System. Like they, they specialize in pain science. Like that's their, 
that's their thing. Like they talk all about pain and pain science. There's also the San Diego Pain Summit. Like so, that, that's really good. That's gone on for the last few years. So you can buy the videos, download the videos of that. I'm not sure Greg Lehman has spoken at that. But Lormore, Lormore, I think I'm, I hope I'm pronouncing his name it. Lormore Mosley. He's he's another guy that's worked with Butler and the Noy Group, and he has a lot of stuff out there in pain. Um, he's a DVD that he actually done. And you can get it uh, through on Target Publications, uh, Laurie Draper's website. I, I'd say you could find snippets of that on YouTube as well. Anyway, I'll send that stuff to you afterwards. But uh, your book, Keep Moving. So what made you say, do you know what, I'm going to write a book? Well, I I like writing. I've written a blog since 2007. I 2007? I, I know. You're I ancient. Know. You're ancient. <laughs> um. I, I've written for some articles like Idea Fitness and some various publications, the Christian Science Monitor. And, and again, I felt like... What was the name of that Christian Science Monitor? The Christian Science Monitor. It's a, well, it used to be a paper. Now it's only online in, in, out of Boston. Yeah. That's gas. Christian, I take it. You know, I, I actually think they're, they're Christian science, right? So I think, and again, this is not my field, but I think they actually believe... they did, not that the the paper necessarily does, but it was started by a woman who didn't believe in medication, right? And so, I I they have I want to say the Mary Eddy Baker Library. What they have there is actually pretty cool. There's like a three-story stained glass globe, and you can walk inside of it, and wow. it's kind of stuck in time because it's the globe of whenever whatever year it was built. But it is pretty cool to be inside this stained glass globe. So. I'm not really sure that the the paper are Christian scientists at this point, but they might be. I honestly don't know that. It's gas. Anyway, go on with your book. Um, yeah, so I just feel like there's all different ways that people get information that helps them, right? Like some people come to my classes. I have YouTube videos and some people do that. I have purchasable videos and some people do that. And some people read and that's their better way. And they, they want that guide that they can turn back to for this is the, the part that helps me or that related to me. And so that was definitely one of the reasons. It's just like another tool and resource for people. But again, I really enjoy writing and telling stories. And so it was important to me I felt like there were a lot of books out there geared towards instructors and people who really care about fitness and movement, but there wasn't a ton that like people who are going about their lives who, I don't want to say they don't care about movement because how can we not care about it, but it's not like their priority. My, I wanted to pique their interest about movement. Movement. I wanted to do it in a way that makes it fun, lighthearted, and tell stories. Um, so, for example, I have a chapter on fascia, and my mom was like one of the first pers- people to read the book, and she read it, and she was like, "No one's going to care about what you put in here." And I rewrote it, and she was like, "No, no one's still going to care about fascia as much as you do. Like, just the interesting parts, Maggie." <laughs> and so I felt like that's what I really worked to is like, "What? How do I make someone care about this?" And if I can't make it an interesting or fun, it got cut from the book. So it's a lighthearted, easy read with like cute cartoons to make pain, which is frustrating, a little more manageable and bearable and the tools about anatomy and the exercises. Um, 
stick a little bit, right? You have a visual, you have the words, you have a story that might help um, you remember it. Like I talk about my grandparents, I talk about my experience with pain, I talk about my clients' experiences with pain. So, so, the, so the book is written more towards the general population rather than rather than the practitioner who wants the science. Correct. I would say it's written more towards the general population. However, there is a piece of me that, as a if I were a new instructor, kind of wish I had this book because I feel like you could read it as like how to talk and engage with your clients, right? Like I'm telling general people what they should look for, but then as a practitioner, you could be like, oh, I should be doing an intake. I should be asking these people where the pain came from. I should make sure I understand this about anatomy, right? I, you know, so you could use it as a tool as if as a fitness professional, but I definitely wrote it for the general population. So uh, a question I want to ask you too is our language towards our clients. Um, very good friend of mine. I say he's a very good friend of mine. We've only ever interacted online now because he lives in Australia, but David Joyce, he's the head of performance of the G GWS Giants. They're a team in the Australian football league down there. And Joyce, he's brought out two like savage books. Like, so one's called high performance training for sports. He co-wrote with a friend of his, um, Daniel Lewenden, and they also have another book called oh, Sports Injury Prevention and Rehabilitation. I'm pretty sure that's the title of it. I'm pretty certain that's it. But uh, Joycey has a chapter in that, in that second book, um, Sports Injury, um, the Sports Injury book. He actually did one with David Butler, the guy who I spoke about. And they, you know, he speaks about pain in, in one of his chapters, and he speaks about, like, the language that we use with like he was talking about with athletes, but it would pertain to people who just deal with general everyday clients as well. That we need to be very careful, careful at how we speak to them, you know? So like even like he would say like, you know, the sort of old traditional thing with a team, if you have this athlete, you know, he's, he's known to have a knee issue and he's like, you always go, how's the knee? How's the knee doing? How's the knee feeling today? He's like, you keep reminding them that they're broken. Like, Oh, how's your knee? How's your knee? Whereas like, you know, he'd be like, feeling strong today you know like so he's saying like you know how to reword things and or like if an athlete was coming back from an acl injury and like someone say all right now try that on your bad leg and he'd be like what like you're putting in their head that they're broken again instead of saying no try that on your left leg you know if it was left acl for instance and so the other thing like the kind of question i want to get to you is suda one language like how we speak to clients and then two there's also clients who at a subconscious level don't want to get rid of their pain like they, they purely self-identify their pain because a part of them goes, I get a lot of attention from other people because of my pain. And I kind of like that. You know, a lot of, a lot of people are like, oh, how are you? Do, do, what, do you need anything? Do, do you know, how's the back today? Do, do you need me to go into the shop for you? So like at a subconscious level, they're kind of like, they self-identify that, you know, I'm a back pain. Like I am back pain. I'm broken. And like I get attention from it. And I kind of, and I kind of like, like it too. You know, they don't consciously think that but it's so conscious level they are. So like, how do you speak to people who are in pain? And then how would you go about somebody who you feel is they're self-identifying with their pain and at a subconscious level, like they really actually don't want to get rid of it. Like how would you deal with those two things? So language and Yeah, no, I think language is key, but it's always a balance, right? Because sometimes we need to communicate things quickly, right? Mm -hmm. Like, um, like I remember when I first started training, someone said to me in a class, never use the word don't. People get turned off by it. They don't hear the word don't. And then they do what you don't want them to do, right? And cue positive things. Like, what do you want them to do? So 
don't hit your head on the floor, make sure your head stays off the floor, right? Like, so cueing like that. Um, I do think, you know, even before we talk to people like your bad leg or the knee and things like that, and I'm sure I've fallen into that, like how's your knee today, you know, what or how whatever that issue is. I think people already often think of themselves as broken. I, I have a chapter in the book where I talk about, we tend to talk about a weak muscle or a strong muscle. And even that terminology is, is difficult because it reigns us in so much. It, when the war, when the body's more complicated, like part of your muscle could be weak and part of it could be strong, part of it could be tight, part of it could be long. And that the truth is really the whole body is kind of playing this game of tug of war where one thing might pull more and it's overpowering the other and we need to look for balance. So I think in our language, we kind of need to find that and really encourage people that they're not broken and that there's nothing wrong with them and they're not weak, right? Because I think a lot of people, even who are strong, think they're weak and they're really hard on themselves. So I think we need to be careful with terminology like that. Um, and part of that is just having an open dialogue, right? And a trust relationship so that if you do say, if, if someone does walk in and you say like, how's that knee? Like, they know you're not judging them as a pain person. You're maybe trying to be quick in your discussion, right? So there's a balance with that. Um, as to people self-identifying with pain a little bit, that's certainly a tough one. I, the people that come to me, I feel like truly want to get out of pain. They're showing up every day for that. And, and that is lucky for me because they're certainly more motivated. Like, I don't think they would come to me if they didn't feel like they were getting some improvement or postponing a surgery and things like that. But I do wonder, we, we're being misleading if we don't point out that emotions and pain in the physical body are connected, right? I think they know that now. Um, so I guess I'd partly, again, want to have that conversation a bit of where did this start? Did this person get in pain and pain developed into depression? And now they're like, oh, I can just never get out of this and this is my life, right? Or did this person have depression and it evolved into physical pain? Because if that's the case, I mean, not that I can't be helpful and I feel like emotions come up all the time, but they probably need to work with not just a physical therapist or a Pilates instructor, but someone to help with their mental issues that are going on. It, it has to come together, I think, sometimes. Yeah, yeah, you can't separate that. Should, uh, it also brings to mind to, um, I actually said this on a podcast recently with uh, Quinn Hennock, who's a PT. I was telling him a story, but there's a, another... Uh, gentleman Bill Knowles he's in Philadelphia B Bill's a very well-known sports re rehabilitationist and he was saying that he'd often uh, he'd often get these athletes walking in and, and they they're purely self-identified now with an injury they have you know so they walk in maybe with a limp you know the dodgy knee or ankle or whatever or they have you know some hip issue and he'd be like he play a game with them like where they're moving around and they're having to be a bit reactive and he says and he, and he says they, they move fine does not because they they basically have forgotten about their pain and he says they're like he's like it's a you just watch them move and if you were to watch walk in and watch them just play around this reactive game laugh and having fun with you ah you'd be like you wouldn't think anything and then as soon as the game stopped they went back limping again and his whole thing was like there's something there's something you know ingrained in that when they're in that environment when they're moving their body that they're like oh i'm broken i'm broken where it was like oh game ah. so he was like there's some like mechanism 
you know, at a neural level, at a whatever, some type of brain level where there, there's a disassociation there. Like, so he's basically saying that like, there just seems to be in a self-identification at one level that is gone and another once you make them completely unaware of it. So it just, it, it was interesting when I heard Bill or um, yeah, Bill Knowles speak about that. I do think I've um, seen that like if you put people in virtual reality games, they can do more. And I think distraction is a key factor there, right? Like they also know um, if you are swearing, you can withstand more pain, right? So like just distracting yourself with other thoughts that, but that can be hard. But I feel like, I don't know, my parents would always do that. Oh, if you're bored, like distract yourself. Like if, you know, any good doctor knows that, like a, a phlebotomy, a phlebotomist putting a needle in you is going to talk to you while they're doing that, right? Yeah, yeah. There's an art and a key of distraction. But I also think in that, because I definitely have seen people that are like, oh, I have bad back pain, I'm on disability, I can't go to work, I can't do anything. And then I've seen them go sledding. And I was like, wow, like you're going sledding. That seems really risky for the back pain that you can't do anything with, right? Mm. And I think that gets behind motivation. Yeah. We have to figure out how to, and it's, I mean, it's not all on us as fitness professionals. People have to motivate themselves. But one of our goals is to encourage people and help them find their motivation. And again, think more broadly because someone might be like, well, I'm not motivated to sit and do this repetitive exercise. So if they're not, well, can we come up with other options for them? Is there another tool, movement tool that they can use that they're more likely to stick to? But I do think motivation is key. And, and I struggle with that because... It's a little bit, I enjoy life so much that I'm almost terrified about the inability to move, right? That is definitely one of my motivators to get up and move every day. Mm. Like, if I ever lost this, I cannot imagine my life. So I struggle when people don't strive for that a little bit, right? Like when they are willing to be like, oh, as if they've given up. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we could get into a whole other conversation there about neurotransmitters because, I mean, dopamine is massive in learning. So, I mean, like if someone is actually just like at a neurological level, like deficient in that, that that's another driving factor too, you know. I guess that's just probably top of my mind awareness because I'm reading that book by uh, Zapolsky, Behave, so he often speaks about dopamine and that. I sent you there a video uh, on the chat box there with uh, from, Lor- from Lormor. Lor- I hope I'm pronouncing that name right. Lor- so for people who are listening, and people who are listening, they'll, they'll know who I'm talking about, I'd say. So, L-O-R-I-M-E-R is his, is his first name. Lormer. I think that's how you pronounce it. Mosley. So, uh, pain, the brain, and your amazing protectometer is the name of his presentation. It's on YouTube. It's an hour and 23 minutes and nine seconds. Oh, yes. He has like one of the most popular talks about pain and most yeah, followed. Yeah. There's one on Ted too. Yeah. He talks about, yeah, like uh, he was running one day and, and like he, he barely like clipped his leg off a branch and he saw a snake and then like, yeah, he's saying like that it, it reprovoked like a pain incident. So like yeah, he's got like a very popular pain talk. So he's one on Ted too as well. Also just for the listeners, that book by David Joyce, that is the title of it. Sports injury prevention and rehabilitation that he co-wrote with Daniel Lewinden. And them two boys also have the other book, High Performance for Sports, which is phenomenal as well. Um, so we were just wrapping up there about that talk there about motivation. So your book, it only recently came out. So where can people get that on Amazon? Yep, Amazon. Yeah, and then like 
in Connecticut, there's some local shops, I think, that are selling it. Some Barnes and Nobles have it. Uh, but Amazon's probably the easiest way. Sweet, sweet. All right. Well, I have some wrap-up questions here for you. So the first one is, what have been the biggest lessons you've learned so far in your life? About pain or any any no, broad lesson? Any broad lesson for people to walk away with here. All right. I'm, just sticking, um, I'm sticking on my blue blockers here. It's getting dark and dumb. <laughs> uh, I would think something about failure. I'm not sure what it is yet, but failure is kind of trending now, I think, like a reminder that it's okay to fail. And probably that I've learned my best lessons or gotten my best lessons when I've failed at something. Uh, failing still totally sucks, <laughs> but it's really good. Uh, it's really just about reframing that. I mean, I like the saying, you either win or you learn. So there is no losing or failure. Yeah, no, that's a good saying. Yeah. I've liked changing lately. Um, instead of practice makes perfect to practice makes progress. I definitely think I'm someone who can strive for perfectionism. And I think I've started to learn and I'm trying to figure that out that um, you'll never you'll never be satisfied if you're perfect you'll never get a book out you'll never nothing nothing will ever be finished and that we're changing every day and there's so much new information that you can't let that stop you right like yeah, yeah. no exercise will ever be done perfect by someone because what you ate the day before the fact that you had to shovel snow everything makes you different than when you did that exercise a week ago I agree with you. Sorry to cut in there, but uh, two things in that. One is a good friend of mine, Sean McGarty. He said something to me one day, and I thought it was very good. And he uh, he said, "Don't let perfection get in the way of progress," which I thought was very good. And then the second part to that is, you know, when you do try to make everything quote unquote perfect, it's not real then, and it's not authentic. So one of my one of my favorite musicians, and I spoke about this at length so many times in my podcast, is Jack White. And Jack White was, for anyone who's into music and they know Jack White, Jack White was known for being completely like just impromptu in the moment. So he never went on stage with a playlist. Never, never went on stage. He always just and so and he so he just for people that don't know and I don't know if you know too. So he was in a band called the White Stripes, and it was just him and and a drummer, Meg. So Meg would have no idea what Jack was going to pull out at any stage in terms of songs. He would just switch all of a sudden. Uh, aside from that as well, he used to play with the worst guitars, like out of tune. They, the strings would constantly snap in the middle of a live concert. Um, he would play songs that he'd never played before with different instruments for the first time live in a concert. <laughs> and like his whole thing was that like, he, he was like, if I went, like his whole thing was, he could not understand musicians that went out and played the same, just cut dry songs over and over. He's like, that to me is robbing people's money. He's like, that is just not creativity. It's, he, he just thought it was abhorrent. Like he just did not, it didn't compute with him whatsoever. Whereas he's like, I wanted to be challenging. And it's funny because then if you read like anything on about like skill acquisition, like the constraints led approach, that's basically what Jack White was doing. It was, he put himself into a constrained environment and said, what can I create from this constrained environment? Like he had so many constraints. Like so, for instance, in the white stripes, they were only ever allowed wear three colors: red, black, or white. So, like, how many different mixtures can you make with that? Whenever they performed live, it was only ever one piece of, of uh, music could be playing: a guitar, drums, one voice, and the drums. So, there's only ever three things going at one time. And he's like, "What can I create from that constraint?" 
and he's just phenomenal. If you ever watch any like live videos of him, like there's loads of times where he's in the middle of an unbelievable like solo guitar solo, and then one of the strings just goes boink breaks, and like he do, does just no panic. He just continue, you know, he just it's just it's just unbelievable to watch. And because like, I'm like you two in terms of I'd be very much. I would not finish things because it wouldn't be perfect enough, that kind of way. And then kind of learning through the, the things of Jack White, you know, because I kind of would have OCD tendencies too. Like, and then yeah. from Jack White, I kind of learned it's not real. Like this isn't real. It's, it's too, it's too sanitized. Like what, what really matters is being genuine in the moment. So it really helped me get over like my OCD tendencies when I kind of learned that from Jack White, that the beautiful thing about imperfection is that really that is perfection in a way, you know, like that you were actually able to be like, this was meant to be the way it was meant to be right now. And if I'm okay with that, that's perfect. If you get what I mean. Yeah. It, it, it helps your sanity considerably. Right? Oh, like, big time, big time. I mean, there's uh, also, and there's also another good saying, uh, happy, but never satisfied. So you could always go with that as well. You know, I'm happy, but I'm never satisfied. Which keeps keep uh, you hungry and motivated. I think that's true of me too, right? And that is definitely a better angle than the striving for perfection, right? Yeah, yeah, big time. Uh, how do you learn? What's your learning process? So there's a topic that you have and you're like, right, I don't know everything about that topic. So how do you go after that? Um, so I would go to multiple sources. I like to read about it, but I'm a visual learner. So I would look it up. If if it was something in the world, I'd want to go see it. If it had to do with the body, I'd have to get down and play with it in my own body. I would want to talk to people. Right? That's like, going to be that's going to be the soundbite, by the way. If, if it was in the body, I have to play with it. <laughs> that'll be our soundbite for today. Uh, yeah, that'll be good. That'll get. <laughs> um, I don't know. I kind of like. I'd want to get it in every possible sense, right? Mm. Through my eyes, through my ears. I'd want to physically experience it because that's how it would stick for me. Like if I read something, which I get a lot of my learning through reading, but I've got to read it like two or three times. If, if, it's, if it's over my head when I start it, right? Yeah. I've got to read it multiple times. Me too, yeah. And a big part of learning, I think, is explaining it to somebody else. Until I try to explain it to somebody else, I don't realize how much of it I have or haven't learned yet. And yeah. then I have to go back and figure out, I clearly don't know this well enough yet. Yeah. Um, so teaching it to teaching it to another individual or a group of people, it's great. And teaching is a great way to consolidate your own knowledge. I, I agree. Yeah. So you're going to say something else there? Well, I think that's a bit where the book came out. Is like I'd had over ten years, right, of of research that I had been relaying to people that I felt like on certain parts I had worked out a really good way of expressing something that can sometimes be complicated, right? Um, and or connecting to people with a story, you know, so that the, the the teaching, I hadn't thought about this until you just kind of asked those two questions together. It's my teaching background in some ways that I think made me want to write the book, mm. right? Because I felt like it was through that that I can see sometimes what makes sense to people and what doesn't and then tweak this until it seems to make sense to a larger group. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Is there anything you do on a daily basis that's essential to your day? So, I mean, movement. If I don't move, I get crabby and crotchety and irritable. But it doesn't have to be a run or an exercise. It could just be a few stretches if I have a really jam-packed day or a walk. But I also started about a year and a half ago drinking a glass of water in the morning. Mm. And I think that, for one thing, 
I feel like, well, if I get dehydrated later or if I screw up the rest of the day, at least I started the day hydrated. And I also... A little win. You have a win every day. It, yeah, it's a win every day. I feel better. I'm not you know, crazy about it. If I wake up in the morning and I'm like, I, drinking water feels like it would put my stomach off, I skip it and don't like make myself crazy. But I started doing that because about a year and a half ago, I hiked Kilimanjaro, which had been this like 10-year dream of mine. Nice. nice, well done. And well, maybe not. I had to turn back six hours from the top, so I didn't get to the top. But I, um, the first day on the mountain, I was really struggling. The second day on the mountain, I was really struggling and thinking, I did this to myself. I'm torturing myself. Why did I do this? This is awful. This was such a dumb idea. This is what I think of a vacation. I was like in a really bad headspace. And I, before I went to bed that night, I was like, I have to figure out how to survive on this mountain because I have six more days of this <laughs> and it's going to be miserable. And one of the things I changed was that I would get up 30 minutes earlier to drink 32 ounces of water. And it, everything on that mountain was so difficult that it took me 30 minutes to drink 32 ounces of water. But it helped me so much. And I thought, oh, well, in Connecticut at sea level in my normal life, I don't notice how bad waking up dehydrated is, but how obvious it was on that mountain that water helped me made me start drinking water here. Even if I feel like I don't notice the difference, I know on a cellular level it's making a difference. And were you just getting acute mountain sickness or how come you felt so bad going up Kilimanjaro? Yeah, it was altitude sickness. And actually when I, and cold, like I wasn't, I wasn't dressing right. I wasn't getting any sleep. And when I made some changes, having been on the mountain, like I started putting on, because the first night on the mountain, not one of our guides, someone else at a camp, I was putting on like gloves and a hat. And he said to me, oh, if you need those already, you're not going to make it up. And I was like, oh, I, well, I guess I shouldn't put my glove and hats on. And I was up all night like freezing. And then I was, the next day I was like, that guy doesn't know me. I'm freezing all the time. I need my glove and hat, you know? So I changed what I did. And yeah, and then I actually had, I mean, I wouldn't say it was easy, but the next few days of the climb went pretty well for me. Um, many people in our group were vomiting and had diarrhea. It was oh, like wow. a catastrophe. And the guides kept being like, you're fine. You're fine. We charge ahead. You guys um, are soft. <laughs> <laughs> and on the morning, uh, the summit morning, uh, I was doing really well. I wasn't sick. Um, and we started hiking. And I think six hours into that morning hike, I like lost the ability to move my left leg. I couldn't coordinate wow. my trekking poles. And I sat down and I basically started crying because I knew I was not going to continue. And the guide basically called it. He looked at me and he said, this mountain's going to be here. Like, you don't want to do this. And I remember thinking like, all these people have been throwing up, like literally crapping their pants around me. And he's been like, you're good. Keep going. <laughs> you know? And I'm like six hours from the top of this mountain and he's telling me to go back. But I knew I couldn't move my legs. So I knew it wasn't really like I had no choice. Yeah. Well, I think I'd rather shit my pants than like get neurological symptoms in my leg. Yes. So, yeah. But uh, will you go back? I that is a constant debate. If I, I don't know. I want to see the top of that mountain still, but I would hate to go back and not make it to the top again. You know? <laughs> Um, I think you'll fucking do it, no problem. Maybe it's just a little more preparation. But that, like, that happens in terms of some people are just way more um, sensitive to uh, acute mountain sickness. I was only reading that actually in a textbook there in um, McCardle Catch Catch. 
McArdle catch catch they were, they were talking about acute mental sickness and they were just saying that there is a certain population of people like they just like it, it take they just need longer they need a longer time to adapt before they can start moving up the mountain so they're turned they're basically they're saying how fast people can ascend is going to vary quite a lot but it's funny too like I mean in terms of like uh, I also think like the Sherpas you know the way like and people go over to Everest and, and K2 like and you know like it's a big deal for like and I'm not geez, I'm not diminishing the, the achievements whatsoever but the way these people are always like you know it's a big thing and, and the Sherpas are just like yeah we do this every day what's the big deal this is just like oh today's just Monday for a Sherpa yeah <laughs> oh we're just plodding up here it's just Monday <laughs> whereas like well, it's definitely true you get used to it although on our hike on day two one of the porters in our group had to get sent down with pulmonary edema and they basically told us you could do it your whole life and one hike it just hits you and he'll come back in two weeks he'll be fine he'll hike the mountain for forever you know (laughs) so it's it's fascinating but yeah i definitely struggle in high altitudes that's certainly a life lesson and anytime i go into altitude so if i do it again I want to spend like two weeks higher than sea level in Connecticut before I land on that mountaintop, you know? Do it. You should do it. I think, I think a party needs, you know, wants you to do it too, you know? Yeah. Oh yeah. A big part of me wants to, but then, so, so there was, that was a moment on that mountain where I was totally, you know, when we talk about pain, I felt like a total failure and utterly disappointed in myself like really disappointed but I also had this sense of like I was making the right choice and like kind of forgive myself in that moment and it was kind of it was a bunch of complicated emotions when I got back actually a week later an Irish woman died on the mountain who was roughly my age and I remember thinking I made the best choice in the world I get to go back right think you're a bit harsh to on yourself i find that too it's it's obviously it's a huge generalization but i kind of find out with some americans too that they're really like they're like you either win or you're a loser i'm like no like the whole thing is like did you try it did you do your best man that is the real thing that's that's the real fucking the real essence of it all like and i think you'll go back and you'll nail it to be honest i'll the next time i talk to you i'll be like well and you'll be like yep got to the top no problem that time <laughs> you know. um, I, I hope that's true but i i think you're right i think there is certainly American, maybe more broad than that. I'm sure it's, it's cultural, but like there's no pain, no gain. Like I should be, I should be suffering or I'm not doing it right. Yeah. And actually I I think in the world of pain, that's important. It sets us back to think that everything should hurt. It it shouldn't hurt. Movement should feel great and be effortless. Right. Unless you want to run a marathon or you want to hike up Mount Kilimanjaro, like you can have goals and ambitions that are going to be challenging and might fatigue your quads and be really painful and if you're gonna be an athlete some of what you have to do might be painful to get to that process but it yeah, doesn't well, have to be well that's a whole other conversation that's the conversation of the difference between sports performance and health which are two completely different things they live on opposite ends of the spectrum like elite levels performance like lives right beside death <laughs> like it like athletes are pushing them like like the majority of sports are not healthy like american football not healthy rugby not healthy marathon running not healthy climbing up mountains not healthy none of that's healthy like none of that is got none of that adds to longevity whereas like and i think general population people think they have to do that to be healthy it's like no 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 physical activity you know that like physical activity like just walking gardening having a good social network eating good quality food sleeping sleep's probably the biggest one of the lot appropriate light exposure actually getting into the sun 
and being adapted to it, like not being afraid by it like most people are. Like all that shit, that will add to your longevity. Whereas I think they think like, oh, do I have to train like another? Like, no, no. Athletes are athletes are actually like like if like athletes actually have to specialize. They actually lose adaptability as a species because they get so specialized in one sport to be great at that sport. And as a friend of mine, James Fitzgerald says, there's no judgment of what of of what's right or wrong in that situation as long as somebody you know has fully made uh, uh are fully aware and have made an appropriate choice to what they really want like they're fully clear on their core values and their priorities He's like well then there's no judgment so like if you turn around to an athlete and say like do you know what you're doing as an athlete is potentially probably most likely diminishing your longevity like it's probably taking some years off your life because it's it's such a physiological demand in your body but you're still going to be the best by doing what you're doing. And, and the athlete turns around and goes, oh yeah, I don't give a fuck. I don't give a fuck if I, if I live to 80 instead of 85 or 90. I want to be the best now. Like, uh, So James is like, well then there's no judgment with that. Whereas like, you know, there's a lot of people who just, they don't understand the difference between sports performance and health. They're, they're two completely different things. Like obviously you need a certain, like every athlete needs a certain threshold or baseline level of health to be an athlete. But participating at, elite level sports or like you know sport at a high level does not it's it, it doesn't in any way promote longevity and i think yeah. a lot of people think that oh i have to train like that to be healthy no 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 you don't know no i agree with you but convincing people that that is not true is really hard work we've de- we definitely have gotten in the mindset that that's what health and wellness is as opposed to realizing that most of these athletes incredible dancers gymnasts they are often injured and working and pushing through injury they're broken yeah and they're really hurt when they're older right they have all sorts of physical issues and hopefully they continue to love movement so that they can work on those and they know their bodies really well but yeah it's absolutely true for most of us and, and and it's impressive, right? Like we should be impressed by that. Those people are really committed. They're also mm. not exercising an hour a day, right? That their lives are movement and exercise and they're putting a huge strain on their body. Um, but I think your point is accurate. If you know what you want and it brings you joy, like we constantly make this give and take, like I ran a marathon once. Running a marathon is definitely bad for you. It's bad for your body. It's too much. It's bad for your heart. I'm glad I did it. I have a funny story from it. I think it's good. I like, I don't regret doing that even for the problems it might cause me or cause me at the time. You know, I remember my grandfather had these back issues that he thought were in part from his days, multiple things, but playing football in when he was a kid. And I said, well, if you knew that when you got older, you'd have this back pain, would you have not played football? you know the pain, like, would you redo the, your decision? He was like, absolutely not. I have so many great memories from those days. Mm. So life is not like a perfect balance, but knowing that if you just want to be fit and healthy, you do not have to have agonizing workouts is yeah. really important. And I think as, as coaches and trainers, we have to be careful of that because it's very easy for us to get people caught up in that mindset that like harder, more, you know, come on, are you feeling this? You know, so in our, in our language like that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's, that, that's because the coach in that situation is projecting their core values onto their client. You know, the, basically a subconscious level coach, like, well, why can't you just live like me? Why can't you? Like, I love this. Why don't you love it? It's like, because you're two completely different people whose perception of reality is completely different. 
because, because the, the environment and the experiences that have shaped both you have been completely different. Like everybody sees reality through their, through their own filter. So that's where like the coaches isn't mature enough to know that yet. And, and, and like, and that's just part, that's another a growth process of the coach as a person, as a human that maybe, and hopefully they'll eventually get to that situation where they realize, listen, my core values are my core values because they're my core values and that I can't project those onto other people. See, that's what you, you often see. And again, I, I, I think a great resource for more education that will be OPEX and James Fitzgerald. Obviously I'm biased because I, I, uh, I'm affiliated with the company to a certain degree and James is a mentor of mine, but it's just that they have a component in their education where they speak about uh, consultation and like how to, you know, basically how to communicate with your client. And that's a massive part of it too. One of the things I often say, like in, in that tagline, the customer is often right. I tell my clients in my classes, like, you are always right. I might tell you, like, this is the modification. The book might say, this is how that stops hurting. Hmm. But if it doesn't work for you, you're right. <laughs> and then it's my job to figure out the next answer or the other option. Yeah. But I think it's really important. Like, and I'm not perfect at this. We don't trust ourselves, right? And definitely people who are showing up often at a fitness class or an exercise class, they're there for the socialization. They're there because they want to get healthy, but they also feel like they don't know the right moves to do. And I don't know that that's true. I think they think they don't know the right moves to do. And part of our goal as fitness professionals is to teach people to trust that they, their body knows what they need, right? Mm -hmm. And that the movements that feel good, there's something good in there. And that the movements that don't feel good might be a sign of something that needs work for better health, right? Um, but we can also find a way to work that that doesn't hurt and doesn't cause pain and does feel good so that you will enjoy doing those things that you need, right? Do you, do you find it nearly a bit like, do you ever like sit back sometimes and just find it like a bit mad? So I don't know it's been a while in America do you know what I mean by mad like basically I'm trying to say ironic you know a bit crazy when you think about it when you sit when you sit down and you think you don't have to be sitting down to think this <laughs> it's a it's a what's the word it's a figure of speech figure of speech but um, like when you think about we've had to as a species we've become so disconnected in our modern environment that we basically have to invent situations invent buildings you know to go to do work like as in like to go be physical to be physically active like whereas like you know we just used to do that naturally you know and we need to go to people to tell us how to move our bodies and we need to go to people to tell us how to eat and we need to go to 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 like you know just people to tell us how to sleep and and how to you know get over our pains and emotions where it's just like you know, as as a species before that, we just used to have that inherently built because we were just so much more connected with the earth and ourselves and the natural rhythms of the planet. And now it's just like, it's just, when you sit back and think about it, like, it's fucking nuts. Like, it's nuts that we actually have to go to a thing called a gym to be active. Whereas before, it was just like, oh, it's Monday. <laughs> you know, I, I just walked like, you know, a few miles and I had to climb things where like, that was my pull-ups and there's a big massive rock over there that me and Tony had to like, just deadlift and push over. And then we did a few sprints because we went over some antelopes or whatever, or I don't know, whatever you fucking hunted back then or whatever. What is an antelope? I don't even know. It just sounds like a good word. But you get what I mean? Like, you know, we're, 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 we're living in such an artificial environment now. Like basically like the, our environment is just, has just changed far too fast for our physiology to maintain pace with. And like, I do think that 
that's true. That kind of comes back to like, our world is so comfortable that we've had to create all these other things because we don't know how to do just daily things. And I don't know. I try to find joy in like, we got this pretty crummy storm in Connecticut earlier this week and it was like snow and ice and just disaster. And like, I wasn't even able to shovel it. Yeah. I had to like really work to chisel a hunk of ice off. And then like, even on the shovel, I was like, Oh, this is going to hurt my back. So I would like squat down and pick up the ice and throw it. And I was just pretending, I don't know. I don't I was trying to imagine that I lived in this different world where this was like what I had to do to survive on my homestead. <laughs> and it gave me like joy. And I was like, this is fun. I'm outside. It's freezing. It was five degrees outside um, Fahrenheit. But I, I found, I don't know, I found pleasure in the movement and the, the challenge yeah, yeah, yeah. and the fact that I couldn't just do what I would normally do to shovel and I couldn't rush through it. Like, oh, get this over with. I want this to be done, you know? So I don't know. It's, it is it is our perspective, right, on how we see things and how we adjust. Holy fuck, that was minus 15. We just checked it out there for just <laughs> for, for our European who use Celsius. Five Fahrenheit is minus 15. Uh, for, for five Fahrenheit is minus 15 Celsius. Uh, tell us about your day. What's a day in the life of Maggie Downey? Um, so I normally get up and I... Uh, you should be careful. You, you should be careful asking this because my mom used to say when we were kids, I have an older sister, that she'd ask my sister about her day and she'd be like, it was fine. And she'd ask me and I'd be like, well, first I got out of bed and I stepped with the right foot and then the left foot and I went to the bathroom. <laughs> so you could right. get a very detailed answer. Well, what, uh, what time do you rise at? I usually get up at six o'clock in the morning. Um, I give myself kind of an hour to get ready. I usually see my first client at seven. Um, depending on my day, I fit in either a run or Pilates um, or kind of body weight training. Um, and those are usually pretty consistent. If the weather's bad, I get like on a stationary bike. I don't love that. But And so somewhere in there, I try to do anywhere between third, 40 to an hour minute workout. And then I usually see clients until 5 o'clock. Um, I'm pretty family oriented. So three nights a week, I'm either at my dad's or my mom's or my boyfriend's parents, um, for dinner. And on the weekends I do yoga and walk. I mean, one of my favorite things is walking. Like if I'm stuck on an idea, I, I'll go out and take a walk. Um, Matt and my boyfriend, Matt and I, we will walk in the morning and then feel like we've had a really good day. If later that afternoon we could take another walk, like that's a great day. Yeah, yeah. And in terms of your training there, I know you say you go for runs, but uh, do you do you do some strength training too, do you, do you say there? Well, Pilates, I feel like, is where I, I used to lift weights, but when I started training in Pilates, there's a lot of body weight, and the equipment in Pilates, if you use it, has like a spring and pulley system, so now I pretty yeah, much no, do no. my strength training in Pilates. Oh, yeah, I did a Pilates instructor course years ago. Like, I'm actually an official Pilates instructor. You did st- stop Pilates, did you? Yep. Yep. Yeah, yeah, I that's not. I, I actually did it through another organization, but Stat was the other the other big one too. I did one through an Irish company here, pretty good as well. Like did the job anyway. But I, I taught Pilates back way back in the day. We we learned about Joseph Joseph Pilates, bit of a mad bastard. Um, what would your top resources be for anyone listening? So when I ask this question, the resource can be anything. Like it can be a person, a book, a course you've done, whether it was online or in person. It doesn't have to be just pertaining to any of the subjects that we cover today. It can be it can be anything at all. Like, so if you were to, if you were to be able to give away one thing 
or or one resource that you think I think this could help any person, no matter who they are? So I'm gonna split that. I'm gonna say it for fitness professionals who are listening, I would recommend Katie Bauman because I think she has she yeah. writes in a really relatable, easy way. Do you know right? Katie? So I, I don't know her personally. No. Yeah. I must, I really want to get on the podcast. Yeah. I, I mean, I would, I, gosh, I feel like she would do it. I would reach out. I'd try. Have you reached out to her? I think I did like ages ago, but do you ever know when you're on people's website and it's like message me type boxing and yeah, it, it's always like, they never get those emails. Don't they not? Like they kind of don't. So I, I will try. I, I haven't, the basic answer is I haven't really, really tried hard like to, to connect with her yet. But uh, I, I've listened to podcasts and food and I very much like what she has to say. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think she's great. And she's funny. She does it in a good way. And for the general population, I would say two things. Um, if you're in pain or you want to get into movement, ask, for, like, ask people, who do you like? Get a recommendation right, in your world from someone you trust and then look for variety in your world. If you're sitting a lot, and that's not something you can change. You, you're not going to get a sit-stand desk. Sit in different positions. Yeah. If your job is standing a lot, put a little weight in one leg, put a little weight in the other, put weight in both legs. Start to experiment with, variety, with little types of variety you can fit in your day. Mm. Because it, it doesn't have to start with an extreme big change, right? You can play with little things, and that's enough. And those little things grow. And you learn from those and you find more. So look for variety in your own body. Let that be your first resource, right? Just something I want to touch on too um, before we wrap up here is just on some of the previous topics or discussions we just had throughout our conversation here. I, I don't want anyone to to walk away from this podcast and think that like, I think we should all go back and live in caves or anything like that, you know? Like I think I think we absolutely should embrace modern technology and 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 the world that we're currently into i just think that we should do a better job of marrying modern technology with our evolution so you know i think you know it, again it's a spectrum we don't want to be at either end of the either end of the extremes of that spectrum because i will be someone too that whenever i'm at like a seminar say it's like because my background is more in sort of sports performance but you know i used to go to these seminars and you get these old coaches and they'd be like and everyone nowadays they're all on the the ipads and the ipods and they don't speak to their athletes and you know they you know they, just there's no communication you know, and they're all they just basically these old school coaches they're just like they they, they think that technology is ruining coaching and like my whole thing is like, listen, like if that's the mindset, we'd still be in caves trying to vent fire and we would never have made it to the moon. We've never done so many amazing things that we've done. So like I'm in no way at that end of the extreme saying like, oh, you know, we're so disconnected. We just go back and live into caves and agriculture is the worst thing that ever happened. And blah, 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 you know, all this thing, you know, populations and cities. But it, like, again, it's a balance. Like I think we need to do a better job of integrating our modern technology to actually help promote more of a healthier lifestyle and i think it's going to happen too i think you know the fields of biometrics now become very big you know i i foresee a future and this isn't me i've had this conversation with many individuals and people who are far more knowledgeable necessarily than me but like i foresee a future where like you're going to get up like you'll walk to your fridge and i'll be like good morning maggie your current hydration status is this your vitamin a is this you know and like your phone or whatever you'll have some device that will constantly track your blood sugar throughout the day and let you know oh your blood sugar is you should you know like i just think there'll be more of an integration of like 
biofeedback like how your body's actually doing like you know tonight you should like you know like the house will self-regulate the temperature like i can see foresee like where the lights inside the home are going to actually like have the spectrum of the sunlight because that's a huge problem right now with humans we're inside buildings all day that we basically get one spectrum of light we do, we're not out getting the full spectrum of, of light from sun and like light is like a really big fucking deal when it comes to us as species and all organisms in terms of their regulation and health but anyway sorry um, my whole yeah, point so much mentally and physically yeah uh, it's 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 uh like that's where i really want to do my phd i want to i want to do my phd in circadian biology mitochondrial health um you know something to do with like neuroscience but definitely with light light and circadian biology because it's just fucking the more i learn about it, the more fascinating i am but anyway my whole point here is that like i'm not at either end of an extreme here you know I, i'm not saying that oh we should throw away the laptops and go back you know just living in caves and i know i'm being extreme when i said that but at the same time there does need to be an element where we do need to sort of get out reconnect with nature you know reconnect the environment that we actually evolved from and really it's just going to come with an integration of of both of those things of kind of both the you know nature end of the spectrum if you will with the modern technology and the spectrum and trying to integrate those to best serve our, our health wellness and longevity well yeah i mean i think that that is the thing like i agree with you it's like everything has a double-edged sword right i think uh like i do workshops in foot pain and i talk about like shoes diminish the amount your muscles, the musculature of your foot can move, and then we get weaker feet, right? But shoes are not inherently bad. They keep us from stepping on things. They protect us in certain ways, right? Like, so we don't get glass in our feet, so we can take long walks on the pavement, right? And someone designed those out of comfort. They didn't design them and say, I know how I will deteriorate the human foot and destroy me. You know what I mean? Mm. So I do think that it's all of that stuff. But like our current technology and some of those changes have happened so rapidly. We do need time to, to figure out how we merge these two worlds. Because yeah. I agree with you. Like it's not helpful to be like... Um, or even entirely safe to necessarily be like you should live in a in a tent outside of the house that keeps you safe from storms and things like that and be outside all the time but it is important to say these are the things that are missing these are the things that provide health and wellness yeah, yeah. when you're not sleeping anymore and that's only stressing you out know that sunlight helps with that know that traditionally people didn't sleep eight hours between nine and five and we're trying to force ourselves into a box in our world that doesn't exist right like that's not how you get the best sleep. You know, we should go to bed when the sun goes down and get up when it comes up. And sometimes that's a 12 hour period, right? And you just have 12 hours of rest where you fade in and out of sleep. And that would be traditional. So I think it, it is, as educators in wellness, that's partly our role is to help give people that information. So they're not stressed out maybe about the wrong thing. Like I don't sleep from nine to five and that's something wrong with me. No, it's not wrong with you. Our world has changed what can we do since that's our world, right? Like, what are our options now? Or in exercise, you keep talking about daylight. You know, these gyms could run classes if they have a safe parking lot or a hillside because they know the benefits of exercising outdoors, right? You exercise longer, you don't mind it as much, you get the fresh air. Um, but it takes calling it out a little bit, right? It takes mentioning the problems as well. So it is a fine balance. Mm, big time what would you say are your top and current book recommendations fitness related or anything anything at all all right right now i am reading 
a series of and, and as a well not a president but if you do like some of the founding fathers in the United States um, I'm reading a series of essays by Benjamin Franklin and the title is fart proudly <laughs> uh, and nice. it's just a lot of fun he's got a great sense of humor but he's really good at like making a message that you might not have expected from that time period and the title from this book comes basically because one of his essays is like a very serious letter on how come scientists have not made a pill that make farts not stink so that we can just let loose all the time. So it, that's kind of funny from him, but he also like writes about uh, how it's not right that women women who get pregnant out of wedlock like their lives are destroyed and the men are fine you know so it's just things you might not expect from that generation i, I guess so i like that um and and it, anyway. it, it, these actually are these writings from benjamin himself yeah it's his, it's a it's a group of his essays a compiled compiled benjamin franklin essays and each mm. one is better than the next <laughs> he was some bloke wasn't he he's just a late like it's so funny, like when the American uh, Revolution was going on, and he was over in France, like, and his whole job was just to get money out of French, and he just used to have to like absolutely woo them. And apparently, like, he was just like the master manipulator. Like, he was just excellent at it. Had- his character, my, he, I wish I, I would have liked to get to know him. He's also in the Swimming Hall of Fame. He designed like ah. fins for swimming, and was like really into fitness. He thought like if you couldn't get in your workout, you should run up and down stairs, and like. He was an advocate of health and wellness. Uh, them boys back in that day were just so in, like, like Jefferson, like was like, you know, an architect, a scientist, you know, and then Franklin too with you know with the kite and the electricity. Like they had their fingers in so many different places. They were just like such generalists. Like they, they had such broad like interests, and they were pretty like well, not like in terms of their knowledge in so many different domains. Like they were, they were very well versed. Like it's mad. Like you know. Uh, I do sometimes think if they had the distractions of the social media and like they could go to the movies and see all these, like we do, like would they have gotten as much accomplished or like, could you only have had that kind of productivity in an era when you're like, we have I, nothing else to entertain ourselves, but figuring out how this electricity works. Yeah, you know? yeah. Or like all you had is just books. It was, that was it. Like that was your Facebook. It was just like reading all the time. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's true. Cause apparently like even they were saying that, um, I can't remember where I I was reading this, or where I heard it. it. It was essentially talking about like how bad our attention spans have gotten because again, like we're just we're so overstimulated as a population now. But um, they were saying like like the likes of Lincoln, like you know, and guys back in that day, they could just like stand up for about an hour or two hours and just orate and not have to look at their notes because they had it all memorized. Like they just like. But like it was just second nature to them back then, you know. So it's uh, it's mad to think that something actually I, I did mean to say to you there as well. Just talking, it was just came to my head, and I meant to mention mention to you in terms of like modern technology. A really interesting way to think about it too is there's a guy Joseph Shilton Pierce, and all my listeners just rolled their eyes right now because they're like, oh, he's going to talk about Joseph Shilton Pierce again. Because <laughs> I always met, like, he's like his writings are profound to me. But I always one profound thing that Joseph says in his books is in in terms of like modern the modern environment modern technology is that this difference between our intellect in our head and the intelligence in our heart so he's like intellect will always ask this question can it be done that's it that's all that's all it wants to know can it be like can i put light bulbs in a house yes you can but then it never follows up with the intelligent question of the heart going but is that appropriate 
like so is it appropriate for our species to be under one spectrum of light and like say like right now here in ireland it's like 23 minutes past five on friday in the middle of january and you can see it's getting dark here like this is a complete environmental mismatch right now like me with the light on you know in terms of our evolution of species like lights only around since uh, in terms of the, the domestication of the light bulbs only around since edison 1879 i think if mm-hmm. i'm correct on that so like in terms of our evolution that's nothing and like there's you know there's so much you know uh information now saying you know that since the light bulbs come around it's radically changed our environments and it's it's one of the main driving factors in disease because of the circadian disruption that's happened you know i mean shift work is actually down as a carcinogen on the world health organization but that was just something i meant to say to you this concept of intelligence versus intellect or intellect versus intelligence i do wonder that though like we're obviously having the debate like the smartphone for example is that tablet good or bad or what is the double-edged sword of that and i wonder like when the light bulb came out like i'm sure there are people that were like this terrifying thing like what you know but did people say well is this good for our health or bad for our health was that a debate like at the moment right probably it probably wasn't because you need to see a trend over time like you know because initially when it came out i wouldn't i wouldn't think so i haven't investigated but like I mean, uh, like, it's it's very, very, like, I mean, if you just go onto your computer now and just type in blue light and health, you're going to pull up, like, 29,000 studies on PubMed, like. Yeah, no, it, it, and it affects our sleep, right? Like. Well, it destroys melatonin is, is the big thing. Like, that's the big thing that people talk about. But there's other factors, too, too. It's just, like, light spectrums. Like, what do you know, you know, like a rainbow. So, like, mm-hmm. a, yeah. So, when you walk outside, you, that, you see that. Well, sorry, you don't actually see it, but, like, your eyes pick up that, that light spectrum. And so throughout the course of the day, the, the strength of those spectrums change. So in the morning time, the blue spectrum is one of the strongest and that tells your body it is morning time. But, and then, so that's meant to filter out over the course of a day, but like, and it's meant to turn to red, like, cause then and we're meant to get more red light at night, which then stimulates things like melatonin and tells your body it's time to, it's, it's time to be getting ready to wind down and go to bed. But if you're looking at uh, an LED screen or your iPhone or your iPad, you're, you know, you're telling your brain, you're telling your super, chi- super chiasmatic nucleus in your brain, oh, it's, uh, it's daytime. Better start making some cortisol. Better start shutting off production of melatonin. And it's completely like just fucking us up. It's just a massive circadian uh, dysregulator. It's, uh, it's one of them. But I mean, like there's, there's things you can do. Like see me right now, I'm, I'm wearing blockers. I've got long sleeve top on. I've co- I'm covering as much skin as I can because my, my skin should not be getting the signal that it's, that's the middle of the day when it's not like you know and see the problem is that you notice the problem with, with us is that we can't feel these uh detriments to our health like right now in the moment like we it, it doesn't become uh, an apparent thing until further down the line in terms of our lifespan and then the other thing is that it doesn't show up as like it could show up as anything depending on where like a genetic weak link is and i'm not saying it's just like obviously there's other factors like you know your upbringing psychological like there's so many factors that go into your health and, I mean, we can't even define health, but like psychological health, your upbringing, nutrition. Like, there's, as I say, there's chronic factors and acute factors to to how people behave and and their overall health. And the chronic factors are things like again, like what was the prenatal environment like in your mother? What was your childhood experience like? You know, what all the environmental factors that have gone on in your life up to that moment in time. Then there's acute factors like how did you sleep last night? How was your blood sugar? Like, for instance, in, in Sapolsky's book, behave, he talks about. I love this. He was like. Uh, what correlated most with whether someone got a guilty or non-guilty verdict was when uh, when the judge had at last because of blood sugar. So if the, if the judge had low blood sugar, 
guilty was more of a likely outcome. Whereas the judge had just eaten and his blood sugar was stable. Guilty was less of an outcome. <laughs> so you should bring in like a snack for you. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so see, see, when kids were bringing apples into their teachers, they knew what they were at. There was some wisdom behind that. So there was. <laughs> but I do think like there are so many things in life that we don't realize that. Like they, they've done studies where if people are looking at a resume to hire someone, they view it differently whether they're drinking like a hot beverage or a cold beverage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they give them the, the, they've done these studies where like, uh, uh, so let's say like we meet at a coffee shop or something like that and I bump into you or it's the, they, they went up and I, I said, oh, sorry, could you hold this for me for just one second? And it's hot or cold to drink. And then I take it back off you. And then they ask you later on, How, did, what did you think of that person? Were they warm or did you get a cold sense? And the, because of the drink, they were like, it was cold. Well, I felt they were a little bit like cold. or it was warm. No, they seemed very nice. It was a warm drink, yeah. Yeah, and, and we would never think that. You'd never stop and think, like, that matter. But again, we're getting so many signals all the time that in our fast-paced world, we don't stop to think of. I don't know. You're definitely onto some an, intri an intriguing topic because so many of these changes, like, think of how many changes have happened really in the past one, like, in the last century, right? Electricity, cars, at least in the U.S., fluoride in our drinking water, genetically modified foods, right? Like we've done so many changes. So which one is it that's affecting all our different issues, right? Is it is it the blue light that we're up with all night? Is oh, it? It's, it's all of them. It's multifactorial, but light is a huge one. Like light is an absolutely like yeah. Massive, but when you don't massive. sleep, those aren't necessarily the things you go to. Like you don't go, well, I'm having a sleep problem, and the doctors say, well, you've been eating genetically modified foods your whole life, and and then you added the blue light of the phone 10 years ago, you know, that that's not, that's not even a part of the conversation in our general medical care, I don't think, which is interesting. Yeah. But you have to understand too, is that, uh, sorry, and I don't mean that that was a very horrible way to open up, but you have to understand that this is very kind of kind of saying, I don't, sorry, I think that I'll rephrase reverse and start that again. Um, like I suppose, cause I'm 32 now and like you kind of go through these periods of growth and development where like when I was in my like early twenties, you were really like, fuck everyone, fuck the world. It's all terrible. We're all you know, you go through these things where, you know, doctors are all idiots. Don't know what they're but then you're like, well, fairness, like, you know, I'm a doctor. And then when I go to college, all they learn is pathology. Like they don't learn health. They're not taught health. They're taught how to deal with people who are already fucked up. And then they're also taught through the pharmaceutical model too, that here, like when someone comes to you and they're already fucked up, just this is the topic you give them. Uh, now, you know, in one way you could say, listen, it is on them to, to further educate themselves on, you know, preventative medicine. Um, but it's just that medical doctors are taught pathology. They are not taught health. They're not like, they're not taught nutrition. They're taught nothing about sleep or just basic, uh, basic, um, uh, BLGs, basic, Lifestyle guidelines. Sorry, BLG. Basic lifestyle I think guidelines. I think this is a piece of the problem that stems into everything. Like, I'm definitely not anti-medical doctor, right? I think anyone who goes into that profession is choosing to go into healing, and it is part training, and then it is part like they're forced to see so many clients. Like every 15 minutes, you need a new client, and and that's a bit out of their hands, right? That's a a system and a structure that they're put into that is not conducive to great healing, right? Because you can't really get the answers out of people. You, you don't necessarily know your patients that well. And actually, in my research, one of the things I found is that in the United States, um, they 
did a, a survey and you could self-report and of physical therapy schools in the US, only 6% of them that responded to the survey um, offer a dedicated course on pain and pain theory. Did you, did you say only 6% like responded back to this? Or, no, no, no. Or 6% uh, of the respondents? 6% of the respondents said that their program had a dedicated course on pain. Yeah, and yeah. I said, that just can't be true. Physical, everything physical therapists do um, is about pain. There's no way they don't have a course on pain. And so I started investigating deeper and I, I called um, some of the higher rated physical therapy schools in the country and talked to some of the professors there. And they were like, oh, no, we don't have a dedicated course on pain. And their first thought was, but every class is on pain. But they did, this one woman did say, but that might actually be an oversight because then you don't really track what anyone is getting. You're not all started. It's like, mm -hmm. it's like teachers not having education theory, electricians not having electrical theory. And I hope that this is changing. Um, and again, you could have great physical therapists who know everything and they've done additional education or they came from one of the schools with that. Just because you didn't have that doesn't mean you're not good or didn't get those tools elsewhere in life. But these are things that as we look to how can we make changes to help people, certainly our physical therapists, the people that are meant to be getting people out of pain and moving better, should be having a baseline of what is pain so that whatever coursework you go into, right, you, you're all starting sort of from the same page of what pain is, how it works in the body, and what is the current theory on how we can get people out of it. And then you could talk about the knee individually and what pain is like in the knee and what you might have to do versus the hip or the back or the neck. But we should have like a a, a basic concept of what pain is yeah, and how it works. I think that, like the key thing is that like nothing is in isolation and everything everything is connected. So like like because it's like basically like it's just that. We're too siloed. Like, you know, you're okay. You're a physical therapist. You're a doctor. You're a nutritionist. And it's like, like you're a psychologist or, you know, like you're a fucking personal trainer. It's just like, none of you should be separated. Like you should all be competent in each other's fields. Like it's all connected. So like, I mean, because like, it's just, because every, like a human being is such a dynamic organism with so many inputs. I mean, just to, to like, to, to only like look at a complex organism through one lens or one filters is it's already a flawed model from the beginning to, you know to, to start with you know and see the problem is that like this is when people go oh so you have to know everything you have to be a physio and a doctor it's like no 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 you, you need to like bring it back to like first principles so like there's like fundamental first principles that need to be taught like so i mean like it, basically it, it's funny there's a guy Jill Al jim alcalidi and he's like if you want to understand like just the universe He's like, you got to know biology. And like, everyone's like, okay, yeah, biology makes sense. It's, it's, a, it's a fairly grounded science. And he goes, yeah, but to understand biology, you got to know chemistry. Yeah, chemistry. I, I get that, chemistry. Yeah, but it, if you want to know chemistry, you got to know physics because physics underpins chemistry. And everyone's like, oh, physics, physics. And everyone's kind of like, you know, they're all, and he goes, but to understand all that shit, it really comes down to like maths. And he's like, that's the hierarchy of science. So like basically like, you know, there's a fundamental, there's fundamental like first principles that you could, that, that connects everything to everything. But it's like, it's not that you have to know everything like to a master, like to be like at a master of everything, but it's to be competent. Like, you know, like for a medical doctor, they should be competent in nutrition. 
they should be competent in basic lifestyle, uh, basic lifestyle guidelines. That they should be competent in what good exercise prescription is. They should be competent in sleep hygiene. Like you know, if you really want to be an, you know, you should be competent in what good movement is. Like I'm not saying you should be master in that area, but like you should be competent. I think too, because I come from a field of um, again strength and conditioning sports performance whatever people call it physical preparation where the, the the like the really top coaches are generalists like they know they they're competent in a lot like if you sit down with a top top performance coach they'll be able to speak to you about nutrition psychology child development nutrition agriculture history politics like they'll speak to you about everything movement science biology chemistry physics like a good any top coach I've ever met that's their mindset they talk all about like that the, the, the top the, the elite of the elite and then getting outside of coaching like when you meet masters of any craft be it a chef be it a poet be it a musician you sit down and talk to them like you're a universalist you realise that nothing's in isolation and everything's connected I think that's just a, a big issue too is that just people get into these silos I'm a physical therapist it's like what about the nutrition piece and the movement piece and the mind piece and the medicine piece it's like like so in, in years from now like that's going to be all gone like i think you know there'll be no physios there'll be no doctors there'll be no, you're just going to be like teacher yeah. well i mean it's true it's true since i wrote this book and i've done interviews for it one of the questions i started getting early on was like so what do you know about it? nutrition and what do you tell your clients about nutrition and i was like i mean nothing that's not <laughs> that's not what i do and i got asked it so much that i was like and it's not that I don't read about nutrition kind of for my own edification, but certainly not necessarily in a way that I would feel like I'd play a huge role in that department in my clients. And as I thought about it, I was like, ah, I should have a better background in basic nutrition, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I've been trying to pull up some books on that, that intrigue me or give me some interesting tidbits in that background. Yeah. Because yeah, like it's all so much of it is interrelated. If someone does is not sleeping, I can do them less good, right? Than if they can get help sleeping, right? It it all it all matters. You're but that's gonna... super promising too, right? Because like you were talking about how complex we all are, that offers a great opportunity for change. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's loads of nutritional resources. I'll send you on a bucket list of things. Uh, Precision nutrition is a good place to start. Um, I think Eric Helms um, is a really good resource because he gives you good nutritional principles. Again, this is the key thing. People want to always argue about methods, but you got to talk about principles. So, like, there's like funny things where, like, you know, you get someone like and say, "Well, I I went on vegan and I I, I geez, all my symptoms went away. My 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 arthritis went down. I lost weight. Vegan's the way." And then you meet someone go. Well, I went paleo, ate a shit ton of meat and green vegetables and, and loads of animal products and my arthritis went away and I felt great. And like, you know, it's just like, you know, if we're just talking, let's just, just make this a simple analogy here. If we were just talking about like fat loss and someone's like, well, I did it through a vegan diet and the other guy goes, well, I did it through paleo. It's like, yeah, you were both in a negative energy balance. That's why it both worked. That's the underlying principle. You just used a vegan method. You just used the paleo method. That's like, doesn't, you know what I mean? So again, it's learning the fundamental, the first principles. So Helms is a good place to start off with that. And um, Precision Nutrition knows fairly solid resources. Well, loads of Lyle McDonald's, like just tons you could go on forever and ever on that as well. Um, Renaissance periodization is pretty solid. I do think that there is, there's definitely like a baseline of anything, but that there might be, you know, different tweaks for different bodies, right? Whether we're talking about movement or food. um, Yeah, there's always, it's called bandwidth. 
everyone's bandwidth within like everyone has, you know there's diff, there's individual variability without question but there's still universal laws like i mean i have to breed and you have to breed you know what i mean yeah, i need right. water you need water like there's yeah. a certain our body needs a certain amount of energy to fuel every day we all need well we all need you know an element or, or like we need to be hitting our macronutrients in terms of proteins carbs and fats i mean the types of protein carbs and fats are going to be individualized like the actual so like i mean like the 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 composition of the food can be different in terms of like okay you get your body tries on more fish protein whereas you seem to do better with red meat whereas you seem to do better with like turkey and chicken and then you know from a carbohydrate standpoint you seem to do better with this and then the ratios of the two you seem to do better with this and then the other thing about that is then there's also intra-individuality like so like even not only are the nutritional requirements different from one individual to another but even what the nutrition that fuels and nourishes your body right now in this one time will will not necessarily be the nutrition that will fuel and nourish your body in the future because you're such a dynamic organism, you're changing on a moment to moment. So like, for instance, if you're like someone that's trying to put on more muscle, you're going to need more calories. You're going to need more, you're going to need more calories. You're going to need more protein for, for the protein synthesis. You're probably going to need more carbohydrates to fuel your high intensity training. Whereas if you were like in more of a study mode, it's like you don't need all those calories now. You probably need more water. You need more easily digestible stuff so it's not taken away from your mental faculties. So there's just so much. Like the answer to everything is it depends. Again, like there's, there's universal laws that will, that will pertain to everyone. And then within that is built in individuality or bandwidth. So that's kind of, and that's what I'm saying where people get in all these pissing contests when they want to talk about like all these different methods and means. It's like, yeah, we all are individual, but there's certain universal laws that like are to everyone. Like I'm bound with gravity. You're bound with gravity. You're not getting away with that. Your your strategy to deal with gravity is different to my strategy, though. So what I mean by strategy, the way you move your body, to the way I move my body, because I'm six foot two and a male, and I weigh a certain weight. Whereas you're a female, you've got breasts that are pulling you forward more, stuff like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like a pregnant woman, she's gonna move very different to me. I mean, she's got a big body living inside of her. Like there's so many things. So it's yeah. There's there's and I'm all about the individuality. Always about that. We're so dynamic, but there is universal laws that need to be respected as well at the same time. Yeah. No, I mean, no, absolutely there are, but I do think when someone is struggling with something, whether it's reaching a goal or getting over a hump or getting out of pain, if your practitioner is too stuck in the universal laws and isn't willing to dig deeper or hunt or get creative in a, within a safe realm, then you lose opportunities. Yeah, fire them. They're shit. Get out of there. <laughs> you're a dud. That's what we say in, in Ireland. When so, when someone's not good at something, we go, you're a dud. Get away. <laughs> that's that's usually when our blood sugar's low and we're being very nasty and people. You're yeah. A, you're a dud. Oh, someone's blood sugar's low. His patience is waning. Uh, last two questions for you. You've got one year left on the planet Earth. Elon Musk has said, I've done it. I've got us off the planet. Now, there's an environmental mismatch space. Woo! You want to you read what space does to your body? Holy bananas. One year in space roughly ages your body 8 to 15 years. So you go, you go to space for one year. You come back and you're biologically a decade older, you know, on the average mean. like eight and That's unfortunate because I really do want to go to Mars. And I also want to live a really long time. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's that goodbye. You're going to have to make a trade off there. It's go to Mars, take a shit ton of years off. You're like, probably not make it back. I'd still go though. They they had that thing on Netflix, the Mars generation, uh, where they're interviewing. It's so funny as well. They're interviewing like all the, they're, like they're only teenagers now because it's 2025 when they're going. 
but like they're getting them all prepared now and they're on NASA or whatever. And like the interviewer was like, So like are you afraid like that you you could die? And they're like, Oh yeah. But I'm going to Mars. Like, <laughs> so like they were all like all the kids were like, because like it's just it's just guy again, because most and you know, you're generalizing here, most human beings are just dreadful when it comes to the conversation of death because none of them really sit down and thought about it. Like, you know, they all view death as this terrible fucking thing. I always make this joke about like you know, it's, it's funny that when we die, whatever happens, nothing or something or whatever fucking, because we don't know. When people say they know, it's like, shut the fuck up. No, no one knows. But it, I always think it's funny that imagine like it was like a maze or something. And you're like, this is it. I was, oh man, if I knew this would have came sooner. But I love Alan Watts, the philosopher, like, because he has the thing. He's like, you know, people, they think that's this terrible thing. He's like, you're leaving your debts behind, any troubles, indigestion, all that shit's gone. He's like, what's the, what's not to love? So it's kind of funny in that way. But it, what I found funny was just that the interviewer seemed to be in this mindset that, oh, you're not like afraid. Like, you know, and they're all like, we're going to Mars. Out of your mind, the trade-off, the trade-off is so worth it. Like they were like so well, like versed in those gas. But anyway, you've one year left. Mm-hmm. What would you do? One year left on the planet Earth. One year left on the planet Earth. I think, uh, I'd have to spend the majority of it traveling. I just want to see as much of the world as I can. Fucking climb Kilimanjaro again. Get that? Off your yeah, planet. I'd have to get back up there. Top Australia and New Zealand would be super high on my list. Oh. I haven't gotten there yet. Antarctica. Uh, but yeah, I think I would uh, travel the world. Where did you go? In Ireland. When, when were you here and where did you go? Oh, so w- I was here. Was it there? Uh, what year was it? Well, George Bush 2007. Was I was there in 2007. And we did mostly Western Ireland and then... The Cliffs of Moher. So we did the Cliffs of Moher and we also did, and this is kind of a funny story, I had like one of those like rip off a day calendar and it was like 365, thing, 365 days and like something you should see every, like a place you should see in the world every day. And one of the things was at the end of the Dingle Peninsula that there is a sign that says last stop America. Mm. And I was like, I don't know why if we're going to Ireland, I want to see the sign that says last stop America. And so we went down to the, the Dingle Peninsula and I was petrified driving on the cliffside, like petrified. And we get like down to like this place that seems kind of like the end and we get out and we're asking, where's the sign? Where's the sign? Because we can't find it. And people are like, I don't know, maybe it's here. I've never seen that sign. Maybe it's over here. And we're kind of like on this wild goose chase for this sign. And we walk up through the grass and we get up on kind of this like little hill and you can just see the water turns from like aquamarine to a dark navy. It was absolutely gorgeous. There was a beach below and people had like with their feet made this giant smiley face. And I remember saying to Matt like, well, there's no sign, but this is one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. Good thing we like came to look for this sign. And I got home and I checked, I I had saved all my days and I looked at it and it, like it was the one about the Dingle Peninsula and it didn't say anything about a sign. Like I somehow completely made that up in my head that it existed. But to this day, and we travel pretty regularly, it in my mind is one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen in the world. So Matt's your boyfriend, is he? Mm-hmm. So you've been boyfriend and girlfriend for like how long? 17 years. Wow, Matt, get the finger out. Where's the ring? Where's the <laughs> ring? Where is it? 
I'm only joking. I, I think, I, You're worse than our parents. <laughs> uh, it's very, it's very, uh, I, just, just so you know, and I want to be very clear on this, I think marriage is a lot of bollocks anyway. So, <laughs> yeah, so don't, uh, I'm just joking with you. Just in case I can yeah. tell, like I was one of these traditional Irish people, James, you have to be married. <laughs> Not at all. It's a lot of bollocks. Someone made that up one day. They just were like, uh, people should get, no, shouldn't. Just like, if you love each other, doesn't matter what way you show it. That's deadly. 17 years. Matt, you've got you've got a great woman. Just to let you know if you're listening. <laughs> is, is he? He'll never listen to this. Will he? One of those. Do you, do you know? Do you know when you have these family members? Like you know, I speak about your family and your podcast. Like they never listen to this. Doesn't matter. I I'll be surprised if Matt listens to it. Uh, <laughs> my mom and my grandma will probably listen. <laughs> hi 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 mother hi grandmother how are you doing? <laughs> okay, the very last one. Uh, it's my favorite question. We're going to dinner, and you can invite five people to dinner. And they can be dead or alive, these five guests. Who would you invite okay. away? Five guests. Mm-hmm. Mark Twain. Mark Twain, I like it. Don't, I let school, a... don't let school get in the way of education. I love that saying. Um, I think I'd pick maybe two of my dead ancestors. Because I feel like that would be cool to kind of find out where I came from or how they think and if that gets passed down a little bit. Which ones? Um, I think I would pick, so my great grandmother's father, he was a carpenter, and I think I would pick my great grandfather's mother, because I have a picture of her and her entire family, like on the wall, and I have like family recipes from them, so I'd want some like more information of that so think about like how lost they'd be you know they'd be in a restaurant people pulling out their iphones like what the fuck is that thing they wouldn't even speak like that they'd be like i don't know how would they even speak what do they even speak like back then that would be interesting right like if like how our communication went and like looking at our clothes too you know what i mean our nike and adidas tops like what are you wearing they're like wearing like whatever they wore but yeah be deadly (laughs) right so mark twain two ancestors and going to and uh I mean, Benjamin Franklin would be pretty cool, but now there's a lot of dead people here. So I think I would, then I'd bring in. At least his farts just smell nice. <laughs> Did they invent that pill yet? No, Franklin, they didn't. No, he'd be really upset. Um, and then I, so then I think I'd bring Michelle Obama because she'd oh. be sort of a modern, sort of interesting take on things. But what I will say is I, um, to this question, have you heard of the 36 questions? that help you fall in love or whatever? I don't think I have. This was, I don't know, a friend told me about it. And basically, like, you're supposed to, on a first date, you would ask each other these questions, and then you'd know if you were well-suited or not, which I think is foolish. But it's fun to, like, ask people to me who've been in love a long time these questions and see how they respond. And so one of those questions is, like, who would you most want to have for dinner? And I asked my grandma, the one that will probably listen to this podcast. And... My response would always be like Mark Twain or Ben Franklin. They come off pretty easily. But, um, but, but she, yeah. But my grandmother was like, who would I most want to have for dinner? You guys, my family who's here. <laughs> and I just thought, ah, oh, no wonder like she's 92 and like happy with her life. Like who does she most want to have for dinner when you can have anyone in the world alive or dead? I pick like four people who are never coming to dinner with me. <laughs> And she picks exactly what she has. Yeah, uh, I had a good friend of mine, former guest too. He's been on the podcast twice, uh, Doctor Ben House, and he said the same thing. He was just like, 
he, and he kind of said in a way, he goes, you know, I kind of don't like these questions. Since people are, you know, they give these superficial answers. I like this guy, that guy. He's like, I just want my family there. Like people who I actually want to be around. You know, that, that was his. But again, listen, as, as I touched on earlier on, that's, 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 you know, you've, you've different core values, different perceptions of reality. You know, people are in different places in their lives. Each individual has been shaped by um, their experiences up until the very moment in time that we're, you know, that, that we're in. So your answers are going to be different. You know what I mean? So, I mean, like if, if, if you come from a family where you're not close or you never knew your parents or you just have no relationship with your family, well then your answer is obviously going to be, yeah, my family. Whereas you could come from someone that's very family oriented. That's one thing I actually found now anytime I've been in America is that like, and again, this is a huge generalization, but just from, from the people who I do know in the parts of America that, that I've been, family does seem to be like a big deal. Whereas, like, I'm not saying it's not a big deal with Irish people, but it's just, just from where I've grown up in Ireland, like, it's not like you know, fall family, very, very, very important. Like, don't get me wrong, you love your family, but it just seems to be like a huge driving factor in certain parts of the states that I've been. Now, obviously, that's as I as I say that, like, there's you know, there's, there's probably some listeners who came from single parent homes right now listening to this going, no, <laughs> not not me, but I'm not. I'm right. just I'm just saying with the families that I've inter- that I've interacted with, I've seen that, and it's not just it, the American families, you know. It's any, and again, again, listen, we're all different. That's it. All comes from the, our environment. Who are your five for dinner? My five? Oh, you're asking me now, are you? Mm. Uh, again, <laughs> it, it uh, no, I, I have the I've I've been asked loads of times. It changes depending on like you know. Depending on sort of like what I've been reading and who I've been looking into, but uh, the gentleman I mentioned earlier on, I'd love to, I would love to have met. He only passed away two years ago. When I found out I was devastated, actually. Even though I gave that big spiel about like I don't see death as this terrible thing, um, it's great. You know what I mean? But listen, you you wouldn't know life without death. It's completely necessary. You wouldn't know left without right, night without day, hot without cold. You know good without bad or good without evil it's all necessary and when you realize that it's all necessary and the universe works in contrast you're like oh i guess there's nothing really to like worry about then is there because it's all part of the ride people it's all part of the journey so don't stress about it as the saying goes if you can control it you don't need to worry about it and if you can't control it don't worry about it don't worry about it. i like that expression yeah although uh surprising for someone with some ocd issues <laughs> I obsess about death a little too much. Uh, well, I, I meditate and think about it a lot, you know, and I, I think in my head, I, I think I'm more braver than I am. I can imagine myself, you know, I, I come across like real brave, but, and then I'm on my deathbed, like, I don't want to fucking out. <laughs> I thought you said you were okay. This, I'm fucking down. <laughs> it probably would be like that. I'm trying to think that I'd be very, you know, zen-like. But uh, my five, uh, Joseph Shilton Pierce, he'd be in it right now. Just love to, he just seems to be such a beautiful man. Uh, he just he's re- he wrote a ton of books like just on uh, just child development, human development, spiritual growth, transcendence, stuff like that. You know, deep shit. I remember, someone in my family picked the book up one day and was like, "Whoa, that's too heavy for me." And I was like, "I love it. It's really good." Uh, Lincoln, I think Lincoln will be there. Uh, I would like to meet Martin Luther King. Mm. Um, there's a guy called Jock Fresco who was the founder of the Venus Project. Jock Fresco was a futurist and, and, and an inventor, and he basically developed a model of a resource-based world economy. So there was no money, there was no segregation, none of that. He was like, the world would be run through science. We would have uh, basically like you would have these scientific algorithms that would say, right, this is what the world needs from a re- resource standpoint. We would find the people who are most qualified to build these things. And people go, well, how would you reward people if there's no money? It's like you would be looking after a society that would look after you. 
he's like your reward systems would be completely different like you would feel you're contributing to society and that would fulfill you like and people just couldn't compute that because again like we just grow up in a world where like all we know is money so but listen and he turned around and said listen I'm not saying that my my world is a utopia he's like I just believe it's a better model than what we currently have so like his whole thing was like give me something better I'm trying I'm trying my best here uh, so Shilton Pierce that's four like there's so many other people well so Joe Shilton Pierce Jock Fresco Lincoln Martin Luther King uh, there's loads of people there you could say Nelson Mandela think he'd be a great guy to talk to if he was a real thing thing I take that back if he was an actual person like if he could morph into a person I'd, I'd say Jesus I'd like to see you know see what he was like whether he was real or not or if he was just a made up story to like get a point across I still think he'd be a cool entity to, to meet go on mm-hmm. Jesus turn that turn that water into wine turn it into boogie that'd be even better let's go Jesus um I think it'd be interesting to be like, I knew you weren't white. No way could you be that white when you're from the Middle East. I knew you were tan. All those statues, I knew they were bullshit. Um, you know what's funny, randomly, about two of the people on your list is I, um, about a month ago, I took a Myers-Briggs personality test. And uh, it, like, list, it was a very positive like way of giving you your personality or whatever. And so it listed like people with your personality. And the people that it listed with my personality were Martin Luther King and Nelson Mandela. Uh. And I was like, wow, I am underachieving. Like this, I, I should be so much better than I am. And then I went online where it's not meant to just make you feel good about yourself. And I was searching like who else has this personality. And it, it was, it said Hitler. And I thought, I thought oh, you were going to say, I thought you were going to say Vladimir Putin there for some reason. Or yeah. No, but like, not not similar, but like n- not a great person we idolize, right? And uh, I just laughed and I said, "Oh, I- I'm doing fine. It's okay. If if these are the extremes, if it's Martin Luther King or Hitler, I can be neither." <laughs> yeah, he'd actually be interesting to bring too, Hitler. Just, he would just, be. Yeah, just to be like, you know, how'd you coordinate all this, right? Like, what is what is it about your nature that made that able to happen? Well, I actually find those those characters extremely uh, interesting to to uh, study. You know, Hitler, Stalin. Because again, listen, everyone and everything is the way they are for a reason. Like nobody was born into the world with that, you know, with that hate in their heart. You know, something like something happened. Now, unless there's like a tumor in their brain secreting some type of so something like you know like massive amounts of testosterone, which even uh, that's actually a myth too. That testosterone makes you aggressive. It makes people who are already aggressive more aggressive. It's an amplifier rather than a, ca- a causing factor. But like I'm fascinated with really dark characters because I mean I'm just fascinated with understanding human behavior. Um, yeah, I mean I agree. I agree. Humans yeah. are interesting. Well, we're fucked up. We're interesting. Yeah. So the five there that I would pick, uh, as I said, Joe Shilton Pierce, Lincoln, Martin Luther King. Uh, Jock Fresco and I'd probably put Jesus in there but other people that could be there would be Mandela uh, John Fitzgerald Kennedy JFK would be very interesting Teddy Roosevelt to a degree would be interesting um, there's definitely more people oh Paul Check. Uh, I've interviewed Paul Check twice actually in the podcast um, he's just a fucking no Paul do you know, you know what Paul Check is? Mm-mm. you don't know who Paul Check is come on Paul Check. he's in California the Czech Institute. He's on a he's on a ton of like he, so Czech is a so Czech, his name is actually Czech is in C yeah, C H E K, uh, and it actually stands for an acronym to uh, Corrective Holistic 
um, integrate exercise kinesiology, so corrective holistic exercise kinesiology. But like Paul is wacky, like he's he's like he's mad, like he's in like he'll tell you why, like not he tell you, but he'd be you know one minute he'll be talking about like you know um, deadlifting mechanics, and then the next in the next breath he'll tell you about like fucking child development spirituality or and then he'll talk about like you know your digestive system and your shit and then he'll talk about like why your relationship with your father is you know down regulating the fucking stabilizers of your spine and that's why you have pain in your back and he's just like he's he's like you know very very holistic but like he's his exercise stuff is is, is all right like but i i love him more so for his wacky shit like when you really start speaking about like all the spiritual stuff and like getting into like real esoteric areas like areas that most most people are like oh it's too deep for me you know what i mean like you'll start talking about just like you know vaginas and penises and like religions and just you know talks about all that shit like so i think he's he's fucking mad it all matters oh yeah he'd be uh he'd be a good guy to look at look up yeah paul check i think you would find very interesting too jack cruz i'd probably like to bring jack to dinner phenomenal neurosurgeon he's a dentist and he went back to medical school became a neurosurgeon and then like He's just like an absolute genie. Like, so he's a guy who's big, big, big on circadian biology. Like, uh, so I've had him recently in the podcast too. Like, so his big thing is light, water, magnetism. He's like, they're the three big things that we as a species need to get right. Cause he's like, what's the three things that NASA look for for life? Light, water, magnetism. If you don't, if you don't have one of those, you're fucked. You can have two of them, but if you don't have all three, you're fucked. And he's like, if you don't uh, master those, you're fucked. But uh, the one the one thing about, and I know if uh, Ben probably won't listen to this, but I mentioned Ben House. He'd be cool dude actually brings in there as well as Pat Davidson. There's loads, so many people. But anyway, I'll stick to the five, the first five I mentioned. But um, with uh, Jack, and I said this to him on our interview, the one thing about Jack, his information, brilliant. His knowledge is incredible. The way he gets his message out there, a lot of people don't like because he comes across very pessimistic, a little bit condescending, a little bit like, fuck you. Uh, a little bit like we're all brittle we're all you know we're all fucked like as in like 5g and ems and blue light it's killing us you know whereas like somebody like a ben house is really like he's a he's another genius too ben like he has a functional medicine costa rica i love the way you're taking all these notes (laughs) (laughs) you you can tell you can see yeah of course (laughs) i'm called the i'm called the irish connector i know too many people Uh, but Ben's Ben's in on the podcast twice. He's not a great nutrition guy. Uh, if you want to look into more nutrition stuff, but Ben, Ben, like, like it's just like Ben and Jack are trying to do the same thing in terms of they're trying to you know up human performance in terms of health, longevity, just making us better species, more robust. But Ben comes at it from more of a like I'm an animal, like we are strong, like I, like he's like okay, yeah, there is blue light, okay, there is EMF, okay, there is shitty food, okay, there is crappy things. You're like, so what about it? fucking embrace it take it on wear that shit and just be an animal be a savage whereas jack is a little more like people are idiots they don't know what they're doing like the blue lights killing them and blah, blah, blah. And it's like your message is great information is great but a lot of people are put off by it and to be honest that's not jack's fault to a degree like people can only choose to be offended by the way someone puts a message out there that was one thing i love from that book the four agreements like one of the agreements is uh don't take any personally and like there's a line in that chapter where he's like taking offense is one of the highest forms of selfishness because you think everything is about you so like it's funny when you say to someone have you ever been offended like, oh yeah of course i've been offended it's like why you chose to be offended like you chose to make it about you it's like no one can ever offend you you can only let yourself be offended and like when you think that someone quote unquote offends you you got to realize that that's them projecting their shit onto you 
Like they're projecting an insecurity within themselves onto you. It's got nothing got to do with you. You just happen to be in the moment in time with them when they were projecting that shit out. You just happen to be the medium that they projected out onto. It's got nothing to do with you whatsoever. It's them dealing with their own shit. It's a coping mechanism on themselves. It's actually called um in Zapolsky's book, Behave. You need to get this book, it's unbelievable. I've had this it like the on four agreements. No, oh. behave. One of the greatest about behave. human behavior. Robert, do you know Robert Zapolsky from Stanford? My God, I'm teaching you so much about people from your own country. <laughs> like, he's like one of the top behavioral, uh, behavioral fucking, um, human behavioral, like specialists in the world. I'm not saying that right, but anyway, he studies human behavior. His whole course of human behavior is free on YouTube. But he talks about in that book about um, ag- aggression displacement. So, for instance. You know, I come home and my boss gave out to me and I go home that day and I, I pick a fight with my spouse because I'm displacing my regret. Another one too is, he talks with this really good one. He says, he's talking about social economic status. So he's like, if you're somebody who feels economically inferior to people in first class, your chances of being the person like who gives out to the flight attendant or who like has a go with another passenger and coach is higher. So you're, you know, you're like, uh, cause you feel like less wordy. It's, it's a social, it's like that social economic status gradient. So, and it's actually being poor doesn't, doesn't make people more great. It's the feeling of being poor that makes people feel bad. Like I just read it in the book there last night. He was talking about, uh, there's a thing called the social economic status and health. So the, the lower down you are on the social economic status, the worse your health. And he's like, and it's got nothing got to do with wealthier people actually being healthier than you. It's got nothing got to do with access to healthcare. It's uh, and it's got nothing. Um, there's another part too. Too, he says only one third of it is explained by you living in an area like where, like, you're beside a toxic dump or there's lead in the water. He's like that only explains one part, like one third of it. He says that what really explains it is that you feel poor. It's being poor among plenty. It's inequality, like is basically what he says. And he says that goes for health and it also goes for high crime rates too. It's the same. It's the feeling of being poor that's what detrimental to people. It's, and then he says the mechanism that people use for coping with that is passive uh, ag- aggression displacement. So that so where people take out their aggression on other people within their within their group, like so yeah, human behavior. It's mad. It's mad. But anyway, going back to Dr. Jack Cruz, uh, he um, his information is savage. But it's just that the way he puts his message out, his message out there could be a little better. And I I when I had him on the podcast, that was one thing I, I said. We had a great podcast. You should listen to it. It's very good. But uh, his information is brilliant and he's a very knowledgeable guy. Um, but there was one other thing I was going to say with Jack there. What was I going to say about Jack? Jack, 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 Jack. What was I going to say to you there? Um, oh, it was on my mind. Jack, your message, put it out. Oh, yeah, sorry. Uh, the, the reason, I asked this to Jack too, the reason why he, he does portray his message how he does it's because like, and I said this to him, I said, I said, him, I said Jack, is, is the reason why like you kind of have this real fuck you mentality, is it to a degree because, you know, you spent all this money on education, like you became a dentist, then you went back and became a doctor, and then you kind of realized through your medical education that what you were given as your tools to help individuals wasn't sufficient enough. Basically, you, like your education was a lot of bollocks. It was, it was bullshit. And then, and then you feel that you know that you actually end up harming patients for the first, for the first few years of your of of your uh, of your time as a as a doctor. And and now that you've learned what you've learned from what you're teaching us now through 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 your website and through the mediums that you do, 
like do you kind of feel that you're in a you're in a kind of a, like you know a revenge mentality almost like fuck you i need to make up for what i've done and i spent all this money in medical school and they t- oh, everything they taught me was bullshit and i ended up actually harming more patients and now that i know the actual truth or i'm closer to what seems to be the truth even though we can never say the truth or we can never say anything with certainty because everything is like uh everything is just probability that's what quantum fucking physics teaches us his basing was like yeah that's that's definitely a part of it that's definitely part of why i, I pro- portray my message that way so i'm just saying that to you because when you come across his information like you know just know that in the back of your mind that you know he can come across a bit condescending he can come across a bit pessimistic and that puts some certain people up but just kind of see through that like his information is is excellent because anytime i've gone back and, and checked out anything that he's ever said and ben if ben is this he said yeah mechanistically he's correct mechanistically he's correct so like anything he's talking about mechanistically because when you hear him talk he'll talk about stuff that if you don't know if you don't have a background in it's over your head and you won't be able to call bullshit on it. that's what i was like initially like he starts talking about physics and then he starts talking about um biophysics and he starts talking about like biophotons and and you know it's just something like light so his whole thing is like if you go to him and start say if you want to talk to him about nutrition and you say proteins carbs and fats he'll automatically won't talk to you he's like that's so superficial and like so like just so low order thinking that he's like you need to start talking about protons and electrons he's like what does all food break down to protons and electrons that's why it's called the electron train transport he's like that's where you need to start speaking about and then he's like what's that break down to breaks down into light he's like everything is to do with light and so it's just like that because food is just packaged light that's essentially what food is and that's why like eating certain foods at certain times of year causes inflammation in the body so like his whole thing would be like if you eat a banana in winter he's like the light information that, that brings into your cell it has a power density he's like that tells your mitochondria that it's like a certain time of the year and it's like it screws you and he's like even if you you probably live in a country that doesn't even grow bananas in their summer anyway so he's like you're getting like information at a at a at such a molecular level that like it just it just causes rampant information in your body like and then he's all like then there's the blue light and the ems and we could go down the whole rabbit hole but he's a good guy to look at all that rambling to just say don't be put off by the way he puts his message out there just just take his message for like you know like actually look at his information like and, and just you know i'll check him out yeah yeah it's interesting it's interesting anyway i've uh it's funny you know you're supposed to be the guest and i end up just doing more to talking well (laughs) you know i i think i'm happy to find information that i know you know that i don't know yet too so that that's all right yeah cool all right maggie that was phenomenal i'll wrap up here and then i'll say goodbye to you offline just before we go where can people find out more about you more of your information uh so my website is personaleuphoria.com Nice. And there they can get to my blog and my YouTube channel, my email, all of that. Yep. Sweet. All right. All right. For all the listeners, as I say at the end of every show, well, as I've been saying lately as well, you're spoiled, rotten people. All this information for free. Spoiled. But do check, uh, go over to Maggie's website, check it out, and check out her book, Keep Moving. It seems to be, you know, I, lo- I, I just saw like the cover of it when I was looking up. It looks pretty cool. Do you got some like uh, artists as well to do the art in it, didn't you? Like you took pictures and then he drew them out. Was that correct? Yes. So uh, he's a cartoonist, Ethan Harper, and cool. we had gone to high school together. And so I reached out to him and I was like, hey, I want this to be fun and lighthearted. Um, can you do that? And he, he did. It's great. All right. Cool. All right. For everyone listening, as I always say, take care, be well and stay strong.